You're listening to episode 130 of the Comics Pals. We're a group of comic book journalists and friends who record a podcast together because we don't talk enough about comics in our daily lives. Oh, guys, I'm stressed out. You know, as general manager of this podcast, I negotiate the contracts and uh, our fifth chair, Pete, uh, he pulled a power move and decided that he's only going to be on episodes where we review major Marvel movies since he doesn't read comics anyway. Sounds about right. Sounds but, about right. Don't worry. I've brought someone else in here today. Oh, oh Henry Cavill? No, no, it's not Henry Cavill. Not this time. Better. I brought in Brian Hill. What? That's right. Famed, esteemed writer, not unlike Orson Welles, Brian Hill. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> oh boy. Uh yeah, we t- we teased it last week and uh we made good. Brian Edward Hill has joined us on the podcast. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on board and uh, hang out with us for a little bit. Oh, it's great. Thank you for having me. So, for those of you who are somehow unfamiliar, uh, Brian Hill's star has really risen, I would say, over the last couple years. Uh, you, It seems like every week there's a new Brian Hill book on the stands. I mean, we've got American Carnage, we've got Postal, we've got uh, What If X-Men, which was really cool, uh, the run on Detective Comics, uh, just, just so many different things. And then this week... Uh, the, the, the Beyonce move, <laughs> you dropped Angel number zero. That's right. That's right. The surprise drop. Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> as a, as a massive lifelong Buffy fan, that was so, so cool. And to be able to go from Buffy four and see how that ends and then how it like perfectly leads into Angel. And it, it was just awesome. Yeah, yeah, you know, Boom doing the whole Childish Gambino thing and that was really cool, right? <laughs> yeah. like, uh, when they told me the plan, I was like, all right, that's cool. Do I need to, like, shoot a video, too? <laughs> you should have. <laughs> do let me, do let me, do. Do let me, do let me, do. Um, so, yeah, like, it's, uh, you know, it's funny. No one ever brings horror to me. It's so, so in writing, whatever the first thing is people pay attention to, that's what people think that you're all about, right? And when you're a writer... Especially when you're, you know, when you're young and scrappy, you're going to take whatever gig you can take. Doesn't matter. I mean, you know, you're like, oh, is this a romantic comedy? I can do that. Historical fiction. Oh, I can do that. You know, you're just trying to get some points on the board. And I think because my first thing that people started paying attention to was that uh, Top Cow Image Book Postal that I did for a couple years. And mm. it was a little indie book, but I did about 25 issues on the first run. Um, so people started paying attention to that and they got the sense that I was like this really self-serious, you know, uh, kind of, kind of pretentious comic book writer. And I am pretentious, but I'm not that serious. Um, and then from there, like I did like some big two stuff, but no one ever brings me horror because I guess they didn't think that I was into it. And horror is actually my favorite genre. Uh, I don't really get to work in it often. You know, my, my, I did a little bit in Ash versus Evil Dead. I did write a season of that and that was fun. Um, but that's a little campier than my imagination normally goes. Uh, and then Titans isn't really horror. I mean, I guess there's some aspects of it with uh, with Rachel Raven and all of that. But that's mainly um, action, you know, kind of action, action thriller, that kind of thing. So when Boom reached out uh, about Angel, I was like, yeah, 
I'm a huge fan of the show. Uh, you kind of grew up with it, you know, had a crush on Fred like everybody else. <laughs> yes. And, um, right? Like, right? Absolutely. And um, Amy Acker, shout out. Uh, so, yeah, I was just really into the idea. Um, and I love, in particular, I love, like, 80s horror. Uh, like, those are, like, a lot of them are my favorite films, you know, whether we're talking, like, Halloween, like which Halloween's, like, late 70s, but, you know, kind of set the stage or, you know, talking Fright Night, um, Lost Boys, you know, Cronenberg's work, like that kind of thing. And I wanted to bring some of that uh, into Angel. And, and we are. Uh, there's uh, a lot of the feel of it, I think, has like, a, you know, because Joss, you can tell from Joss's work that he's severely influenced by a lot of that stuff. Yeah. Right. Like if you look at, um, oh, which Elm Street is it? Look at like a Nightmare on Elm Street four, the Dream Master, and you'll see a lot of Buffy in it. Because the way Elm Street four works, there's a uh, there's a girl in the group of friends, right? The final girl has like this ability to absorb the talents of her friends after Freddy kills them, um, and it's all like ramping up to her kickboxing Freddy, basically. And she has a friend in Elm Street 4 that is very angel, right? Like, he's like this dude who's a martial artist who wears a trench coat. He's got black spiky hair. He doesn't really, it looks a little bit like Boreanaz, but like, it, you can see like, oh, wait a minute, like some of these parts are there. And in the end, she like absorbs his powers because he tries to fight Freddy and whatever. And she's like kickboxing Freddy in the final sequence. And it reminds you very much of like a Joss Whedon experience. So I always felt that Joss and I were, were drawing on some of the same uh, influences, you know, like the Wes Craven stuff, the John Carpenter stuff. Uh, so I'm really excited about being able to delve into it and create some new monsters. I mean, the hardest part about horror is figuring out monsters that feel relevant. Uh, like if you think about Halloween, for instance, you know, well, Michael Myers kind of represented the evil that would hit the suburbs, mm. you know, after there was a lot of flight to the suburbs in the late sixties, early seventies. And people thought that, well, if you got out of the city, we can get away from all the bad stuff, right? All the bad stuff is in the city. Uh, and then we're going to get out to these kind of homogenic environments and we're going to be all right. And Carpenter uh, was wise to put fear and, you know, uh, an irreconcilable evil um, in the, in, in the suburbs, right? It was a unique part of it. Uh, um, and, you know, so like the characters like that, they speak to our time in a way. So with the angel comic, I can do uh, some of the same thing. So the monsters that you see me create um, are hopefully going to be uh, particularly relevant to people uh, living now. That's really cool. And uh, I, I can't wait to see where you go. And it's so funny that you, you know, sort of talk about how you and Josh have, Josh have similar influences because I think about Angel, the show, and how, you know, yeah, Angel's this brooding, you know, old guy, but there's also a lot of really funny moments like Smile Time and, you know, kind of getting familiar with you through not just your work, but, sort you know, through your interviews and stuff like that. You're very much, and even through the preamble before we started recording, you, you have, you know, these different angles to you. And I think that that makes you um, very, very much capable of bringing out those, all those parts of Angel, where I think a lot of um, the earlier Angel comics focused on just the brooding part. I think you can bring a lot of that stuff to the table. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, um, I think that's just being like, 
a a creature of eighties genre storytelling. Um, you know, if you if you look at like especially films, tone was was kind of mixed in everything. You know, you look at a movie like Lethal Weapon, and it's got great comedy in the movie, but then you also have this real tear jerky monologue from Riggs by the truck about how you know he was a sniper and he could shoot someone two hundred yards in high wind, and you know only thing I was ever good at, <laughs> you know, and and all of that stuff. And so you, you, when you grow up watching that stuff, reading comics. Um, you just have a kind of a, a more free approach to tone and and contrast within a piece. Um, and I think now, you know, t- things tend to be kind of one tone the entire time. Uh, there's a lot of double down entertainment, which isn't bad. It's not a criticism. It's just, just a um, kind of a trend. But but yeah, like, you know, I kind of like to bounce back and forth uh, with a little, with little wit or comedy and then some genuine horror uh, and all those things work together. You know, like flavors in a soup to uh, to create the experience. So, you 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 talked about how important horror is to you, and I I feel like there's horror in everything I've read of yours so far. Maybe not Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, monster of the week type horror, but I. I feel like American Carnage has a lot of that. You know, you created a monster there in a lot of ways, I feel. And in Killmonger, it's definitely like I I saw it as the progression of the creation of this monster. A lot of people talked about how like Winter Soldier in the films and Killmonger were similar in the sense that they were unstoppable forces. Um, right. very reminiscent of like the Terminator and I, I, yeah. I put those together and Terminator was a monster, right? So, um, I feel like there are monstrous elements of these characters who you can't necessarily reconcile how they get to be this malicious, how they get to be this destructive. And I, I, I don't want to speak for you, but I feel like you're bringing some of those horror roots to these characters. Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I would think that most of the things I write in some way are horror stories uh, because it's just sort of like my first passion. And it might not be, you know, a monster, like you say, in literal terms, but it could be a monster in in symbolic terms, right? Now, I've always been interested in, you know, looking into the abyss and seeing what's there. When I was a kid, I thought I was going to catch serial killers. I, I wanted to be Will Graham from Red Dragon. Uh, and so between the years of like 16 and 18, I thought I was going to join the FBI and, uh, and try to catch psychopaths. Um, and then my mother was like, no, you're not doing that. Pick something up. <laughs> um, and she was like, you're not doing anything that involves you having a weapon. Um, uh, because if you have a weapon, the likelihood of, of something you're dealing with having a weapon goes up exponentially. So find something else you like. And I was like, I like Star Wars. <laughs> She's like, go do Star Wars. I was like, I'm going to go be a filmmaker. Um, but, but yeah, like I, I do try to work in, you know, horror. It's when my imagination works in the language of thriller and suspense and, and that kind of thing. I mean, there's an old Hitchcock quote, Alfred Hitchcock, the uh, filmmaker, you know, Psycho and the birds and all that. And, uh, you know, he's this quote like, if I were to put two people in conversation at a table, it would be rather boring. But if I told you there was a bomb under the table and they did not know, and at some point that bomb 
would go off. Now you have a captive audience. And, uh, and I think he's right. You know, like, it's putting those little things in there and understanding how, how suspense and tension and fear and horror can work in narrative. It's, it's going to make your work, I think, more visceral. And if I have one goal as a storyteller, I like my work to be really visceral and intense, uh, you know, so that, that people that read my work know if you see my name on something like, oh, okay, this is probably going to be going to be a ride. You know, I, I don't like passive comics. I don't like kind of um, uh, uh, non-threatening experiences. That's not really what I do. Right? I like I like to put some barbs on it. I like to leave the uh, the corner sharp. Yeah, and and I think that's that's got to be a large part of what has made your book so appealing uh, since you really took off. But what I like too is that you don't you you know what to expect, but you don't always know what to expect, right? Like I remember when American Carnage was being solicited, and I was like, okay, this sounds pretty damn cool. Uh, but then it comes out and it's like, okay, yeah, it's what it said it was going to be. It's what they solicited it as, but it's also a lot more than that. And I think that's well, pretty yeah, cool. it, you know, the, when, so when Vertigo came to me and they were like, Brian, you know, we're doing this 25th anniversary and, uh, we'd like you to, you know, pitch us a book, uh, that you'd like to do to be part of it. And I was really flattered because I grew up reading Vertigo comics as a kid. I mean, those, those were really important books to me. Um, you know, Sandman and hundred bullets and that kind of thing. Uh, but I told them I don't have a magical realism story right now, which is what I identified as classic vertigo, you know, like what if someone sniffs Coke and every time he sniffs Coke, he turns into a werewolf, <laughs> right? Like I didn't have that story. So, I was like, I got a crime story I'm working on. Uh, it's kind of psychological and downward spiral type of thing. And I pitched it to them and they, and they liked it. But I knew that when it got solicited, uh, people would assume that it would be me standing on a soapbox preaching about the state of the world. And that wasn't my intention at all. You know, even though American Carnage is set in the world of like semi-covert white supremacy in California and and a half black FBI agent who could pass for white going undercover to see, you know, what, what's at the root of it, maybe solve the murder of an FBI agent. I just looked at it like, okay, this is an interesting and challenging landscape for a psychological thriller. And my, my focus with that book isn't, you know, isn't, wasn't so much to um, make it a political work, uh, but just to make it a harrowing psychological thriller about, you know, one of our, I guess, contemporary monstrosities, you know, uh, and I'm really proud of the, of the way the book has, has come out and Leo's work and, and Dean White on colors and, you know, and Pat doing the letters. Uh, yeah, it's, it, I've had a, a lot of emails well direct messages on Twitter because I keep them open so people can just reach out to me if they want. And I've, I've gotten a lot of DMs from people who were surprised at, at how layered the experience was. You know, and, and I think they just thought I'd be hitting the same nail with the same hammer uh, every issue. But um, no, that wasn't my intention. You know, I I remember I was in NYU once and uh, I was in film school and there was a lecture and, and it was about like, I think, you know, like race and gender and film and what have you. It's one of those courses and, and the professor asked like, well, what, what film do you think 
changed, you know, gender or race relations in America the most. And people would raise their hands and they, you know, they'd have their thing. Do the right thing was mentioned a lot. Uh, uh, you know, Malcolm X, uh, Tootsie, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, when I raised my hand, I was like, lethal weapon. They're like, huh? Lethal weapon? But that's the action movie. And I was like, yeah, because racists aren't going to watch Do the Right Thing. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Anti-Semites don't watch Schindler's List. So a lot of times that work can preach to the choir. You know, like you're, you're, you're writing something for people that already agree with your thesis. And Lethal Weapon, uh, I think Trojan Horst, a, a different view on, you know, kind of race and class in America because it was wrapped up in an action story, right? It, there, was, there was honey along with the medicine. Now, American Carnage is much more of a stiff blow, but I don't know if I believe that fiction can change minds if you try to make it change minds. Maybe it can. I'm sure it does. But I think a lot of that happens inadvertently. So first and foremost, my, my job, as I see it, is to make a really interesting, thrilling experience. And how people engage with those ideas is the way they do it. Yeah, and I think that that's, that's the, the best part about American Carnage because you kind of touched on it a little bit. A lot of, a lot of uh, stories in general that deal with race relations, uh, for me personally, they get samey. And they get preachy in a lot of ways. And like you said, I already agree with the message. I don't need to read the same story over and over again. And I like that with American Carnage, we definitely get when I say both sides, I don't mean that they're both valid in, in that way necessarily. I just mean you're presenting different perspectives, right? So um, in the most recent issue, issue six, um, and I think a lot of people have been talking about this, uh, when Morgan gives this, this big, you know, sort of speech um, when, he's, when he's talking to Richard and it's like, wow. You know, this is a very, this isn't a, you know, cackling maniacal villain speech. This is very much a... This is how I see the world. This is what the world is, you know? And Well, yeah, I mean, you know, like when you're... So whatever antagonist or villain you're writing, I think it's important to invest them with dimension, right? Like a writer shouldn't be judging their characters. Right. A writer... Uh, I mean, this is my opinion. Like, you know, someone else might have a different one just as valid, but I don't like to judge my characters. I like to present my characters to the reader and let the reader do the judging for themselves, Right. And so for American Carnage, I talk to people in the movement and, you know, a lot of what Wynn says in issue six uh, is extrapolated from, you know, the conversations that I had. It was more me listening than me talking. I was doing more receiving than than offering. Um, And then like looking at like, you know, the subtext of, of like Fox News and the subtext of like, you know, uh, the right wing kind of talking points and just taking the subtext and making a text, right? But presenting it in in the way that it was presented to me, not as like a mouth-frothing, maniacal sort of screed, but just a worldview, right? Um, and, you know, I, 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 I honestly think because I'm black, I get away with it. I think maybe if right. I was a white writer, they would be like, yo, we don't know what side Brian Hill is on. <laughs> Brian be singing that song, <laughs> but 
But yeah, but and so American Carnage is a little bit of, you know, only Nixon could go to China, right? There's a little bit of, uh, I, I would assume that people wouldn't think that I was part of the movement. And that allows me the creative freedom to and kind of create these characters in a compelling and, and almost like seductive kind of way. But for me, it's no different than writing an evil wizard, a vampire, you know, a werewolf, a serial killer, whatever it is. Like it's, it's, it's all the same thing. If you're writing Hannibal Lecter, you know, you don't want to judge Hannibal. You just want to write him. And you got to let the audience feel, you know, figure out how they feel about a character. Uh, if you're telling the audience what to feel, then I think you're doing a disservice to them. You know, I like to create things that have emotional moves, but I don't like to kind of force the audience into my perspective. Uh, I, I, I trust readers more than that. Um, I trust viewers more than that. So I like to kind of present it in a way that I think is interesting and entertaining and then let them figure out how they feel. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I feel like because of that, American Carnage presents as something that is believable. As weird as maybe that is to say, like I could imagine a Win Morgan, you know? Well, yeah. Well, believability is the most important thing when you're creating a monster, right? Like it, it, the, the monster has to feel like something that can happen. And even if it's like a, a monster of fantasy, there has to be an element of believability, right? Like, uh, uh, and, and giving the audience a way to see how someone like that could exist. You know, like when you, when you think about Halloween, I think the reason why that movie's so effective is it lives in the, in the vast unknown of human psychology, right? Like you've got this mute kid who killed his family or stabbed his sister. I don't know how many of them he killed in the beginning. And then, he, you know, he's in this Smith Grove institution staring at the wall, right? And because we don't know what's operating in his mind, in Michael's mind, uh, we can kind of believe, like, well, maybe he's just got, like, broken parts, you know? Like, maybe, maybe some people just aren't born with the same sorts of things. Uh, you know, when you have Loomis, uh, Donald Pleasant's going to give him that monologue, you know, I... As a doctor for four years, and after that, I tried to keep him locked away because I knew, I knew that he was evil, right? Um, and it speaks to how scary psychology was, you know, like we just didn't know, right? So, uh, uh, you know, I think when you're creating a monster, you you want the monster to kind of live it somewhere in the subconscious, um, and right now we have this fear that. You hate me because I'm different. And that fear is universal, mind you, right? You've got, you know, people of color, it's tuned highly into race. But for a lot of white people, it's tuned into politically, you know, how they vote, right? Uh, like, if you, if you look at conservative rhetoric, it's a lot of they hate me, they want to get rid of me, they judge me, they think they're better than me. I'm a victim of their prejudice, right? And that's what's really interesting to me, just as an observer, is the same people that will talk incessantly about snowflakes and getting, getting rid of victim culture will in the same breath claim to be victims, right? Yeah. And I think it's just like the human psychology, it, it gives rise to that, that contradiction. It's a living contradiction. 
you know, and uh, and removing like my personal political leanings from it and just observing it as a storyteller. I think like there's a monster that can come from that. Right. If we all think that that you hate me because I'm different than you and then everything becomes a preemptive strike against your hatred, we've got a pretty dark society, you know, uh, and horror stories um, whether they're real world horror or, or, or fantasy horror, I think they can help illustrate some of the issues that we have to overcome. I think you see that in Rod Serling's work, uh, you know, back in the day, all the way up to you know Jordan Peele's work now. Right? Um, you know, horror allows us to uh, examine these things in extremity and figure out how we can kind of overcome them. So I guess that's my question here is putting yourself in that thought process, trying to rationalize people who uh, have the rhetoric of white nationalism or fascism or anything like that. Uh, was that I imagine you had to put yourself in a dark place for that? You know, uh, I know like Patrick Stewart, who played a head of a skinhead group in the movie Green Book or uh, Green Room. Uh, he said it was the most challenging thing he ever did. Uh, putting yourself in that spot to try to rationalize that kind of ideology, like, like what kind of experience was that for you? Well, you know, I mean, I honestly think that that goes back to what I was saying before about me wanting to catch serial killers, right? So when I was like 13, I read Red Dragon by Thomas Harris. And uh, Red Dragon is the first novel that Hannibal Lecter appears in. Most people know The Silence of the Lambs because that's the Clarice Hannibal story. But Red Dragon is the story of Will Graham, um, the, uh, uh, the, the psychological profiler who worked with the FBI to catch madmen. Um, uh, the Brian Fuller series, Hannibal, is uh, largely based on the Red Dragon stuff. So I was really fascinated by what that was. Like people that could do that, you know, kind of putting yourself into the mind of the, the madman and looking through his eyes, his or her eyes, right? Uh, and I've always wanted to do that. So I think in my writing, I do something of the same thing. So I, I, I enjoy the challenge of it. You know, I, I, I enjoy like having to put aside my own sense of ego and, and just sort of embody uh, something and think about it um, and see where that leads me. It's just always been sort of fascinating work. I think a lot of those instincts I had as a kid, you know, I think that kind of shows up in the writing. I mean, I treat writing kind of like that. I have to kind of be in the moment, the character that I'm writing. I guess, you know, it, it goes to like your acting conversations, like Lee Strasberg and, and method acting or Stella Adler or whatever it is, like how people kind of uh, become characters um, on stage and on screen. I think my process is kind of similar, but it's something that I've kind of always enjoyed doing. You know, I'm I'm definitely more Hannibal Lecter and less Will Graham in the sense that, you know, thinking about monstrosity doesn't darken me, right? I'm not tortured about it. I don't lose sleep about it. Um, it's just something that has always uh, come naturally for me. And it's me choosing my subject matter um, that leads me into having more of those experiences. It feels like it goes beyond that, though, because you fractionalize these these kind of hate-filled ideologies uh, by creating the, this struggle for power with, like, Aryan Brotherhood and, and neo-Nazis mm -hmm. and KKK. So you're fractionalizing this even further to get and trying to get each one of these different subgroups' heads, uh, which is well, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, 
you know, there's always it's it is the nature of mankind to vie against itself, right? So even in a homogeneous uh, uh, subculture, you're you're still going to have your in crowd and your out crowd. You know, you're still going to have your prejudice. You're still going to have your 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 caste system, as it were, because that's just the nature of man. And what I think is is really interesting is if you look at the white supremacist movement, even if they could press a button and have what they want, and all non-white people disappear instantly, and it's just white people as they define white people, well, they would still have their little factions and power struggles and judgments, you know. Uh, there'd still be arguments about about a hereditary intellect and and primal traits within the DNA spectrum. Maybe all the red-haired people are bad now. You know, maybe maybe they become the new threat. Maybe it's the people that are that are short become the new threat, right? So when you look at the movement, there's a class dynamic to it for sure. I mean there's the respectability politics of the of the people that can wear the suit and they can sound erudite, you know, on YouTube. You know, all the way down to the kind of angry, more rural, you know, uh, remnants of of KKK style theatricality and terrorism. Um, uh, so, like exposing, not really exposing because it's not that it's really hidden, but engaging that, I thought was really interesting. Um, uh, so that we, you know, no movement is is unified, really. You know, I mean, ambition always becomes a part of it, um, and jealousy becomes a part of it. So I just wanted to, to kind of demonstrate that uh, you're not dealing with, a, with a, a solid block of thought. You're dealing with a lot of factions that are loosely gathered around a general purpose. But inside of that is a lot of competition. So I want to I wanna throw it to a, a, an email because we actually uh, talked about having you on last week and we got we got a, a little bit of a listener mail. Uh, someone wanted to, to ask you a question. So if that's cool, can we uh, ask you that question from the listener? Listener mail. <laughs> Throwing it to Mark. Oh, go sure. for it, man. Awesome. So this is comes from Ryan Klubeck, uh, a regular listener and writer in. Uh, he says, I'm just going to open up with his intro. Uh, I hope I'm writing this email in time for your interview with Brian Edward Hill. You are, sir. Uh, if so, I wanted to take this rare opportunity to tell Mr. Hill how much I enjoy American Carnage. Uh, whenever my local comic shop sends my weekly poll and I see this book on the list, I always know it's going to be a great reading week for me. He also had a question, and he asks, uh, obviously American Carnage deals with a heavy subject, and I was curious to know if you ever received significant pushback from Vertigo regarding the content of the book. Is there anything that you wanted to do that you weren't able to do because the publisher wouldn't allow it? Thank you guys for reading, uh, and thank you, Brian, for this wonderful comic. Sincerely, Ryan. Well, well, first, thank you, Ryan. That's very kind. I appreciate it. Um, no, to, to answer your question, I, I never received any pushback from Vertigo um, about content. Uh, and not that it surprised me, but I guess I always expected um, at some point that I would. But but I never did. To their credit, you know, Andy Corey, Mark Doyle, uh, um, my editors uh, on that on that project, um, you know, Margaret Howell, like never never really got. Hey, you got to censor this. You got to pull this back. You can't do this. You can't do that. 
Um, if anything, it might be exploring the legalities of certain things, just making sure that putting a, a sociopath in a Barack Obama mask isn't a federal crime. You know, um, <laughs> you know I had to make sure, you know, I don't want to get a phone call like, yeah, um, Brian, yeah, so uh, read the book and uh, I'm not really happy with who's wearing my face. Um, so I didn't want to get like that kind of thing to happen. Uh, but beyond that, no, I mean, they've been really, really supportive. And to be honest, I thought uh, when I published the book or when Vertigo published the book, I thought my Twitter would go nuts. I thought my Facebook would go cray cray. I was like, man, I'm going to have people cutting up toys on YouTube talking about the kid. Like it's going to be a nasty, you know, nasty year or something. And I've gotten precious little of that. You know, and, and and I have a lot of conservatives that follow me on Twitter. Um, I don't know why, because uh, um, I'm pretty left, you <laughs> yeah. know. But maybe it's because like I don't I don't browbeat people, and I think maybe there's always a curiosity uh, to explore people who think a little differently than us if we feel safe in that exploration, you know. Um, and I'm not one to yell at somebody online and, and all that. Like that's just not my way, um, because online you get such a small sliver of who somebody is, it, it, you know, online is like the billboard of a person. And mm -hmm. it's, it's like judging a movie by its poster. You know, you got to see the movie, like the poster is the poster, right? So I try to avoid that kind of thing. And I haven't gotten much at all. I mean, you know, there've been a, a like, if you're on the internet, occasionally you're going to roll up a jerk, but I just think that's just being on the internet. I could be talking about muffin recipes and somebody would have something to say about hooters. <laughs> but, uh, as far as like the reception of the book has gone and, and from the corporate end to the reader end, it's been nothing but positive. Um, and I'm really happy to, to see that. I have had some people say, Hey Brian, you know, I, I love your stuff, man. I think you're a cool dude. I don't really want to read this one because it's not, you know, it's more political and it's not the kind of, and that's totally cool. Right? Like I, I, I don't think that any person you know, you have to read everything that I do, and if you don't, then I'm going to yell at you on Twitter. Like, no, like, that's just not how I, how I think, right? Like, I, as an artist, I get interested in things, and I don't expect everyone to, to identify with every artistic work that I'm part of, but I, I will say that uh, I'm glad that I haven't gotten a lot of crazy pushback. I mean, there's probably some chatter out there that doesn't involve me, like people talking when I'm not around. Um, and there's a couple YouTube videos that, you know, are a little grumpy Gus about whatever it is, but I grew up in like the hip hop nineties, man. Like if someone's not putting out a diss track about you, then you're not rapping. That's a fact. That is a you fact. You know what I mean? Like I'm not worried about somebody on the corner. You no, know, Brian Hill ain't nothing. Yeah. You know, I'm gonna hit you with this Grammy though. <laughs> so like, you know what I mean? That's just hip hop, man. So I don't, I don't internalize that kind of stuff, but, uh, um, to the uh, to the corporate point, no, no. Vertigo has been really supportive. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a nine issue thing because I always wanted it to be a very kind of a, a short and punchy, strong narrative that a person could legitimately read in one sitting. Um, and I, I never planned on it for being to be an ongoing because it's not a world I want to be in that long, right? Uh, and I wanted to make kind of bold moves. Um, so the story is being told the way I would like it to be told. And uh, I'm just really appreciative of everyone who's uh, picked up the issues and read it so far. Yeah, I mean, 
I think typically anything that's published by Vertigo, there's a high expectation of, and I think obviously, I mean, maybe not obviously, but to me, obviously, American Carnage is, uh, you know, right up there with anything great Vertigo's ever published. Um, my my other question here is, uh, mm. when Alan Morgan kind of reminds me in an analogous way to like, uh, uh. William Stryker from God Loves, Man Kills, the X-Men book. And, and that, oh, okay. For sure. I can see that. Yeah, I can see it, that. That he was like a reverend in the 80s or uh, early, late 70s, early 80s that had a similar kind of cult personality that in maybe today's context, a media personality mogul would uh, like um, like that. Uh, I was wondering if you had any kind of real world examples that you were drawing from and trying to give a voice to a character well, he's sort of an amalgam of a lot of the cultural snake oil salesmen that we've, we've had, you know. I mean, a lot of people are like, you're right about Trump, aren't you? He's Trump, isn't he? he, he that's, Donald, that's Donald Trump, isn't he? And no, because I'll be honest, I don't think Donald Trump is interesting enough to put in a book. I think he's a remarkably simple creature, Right. And it's difficult to tell the story with a character that's based on someone that's similar. He's like a walking satire. <laughs> yeah, he's just not, he's just not dynamic enough. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, like, you know, he's, because remember, I grew up, like, I went to NYU, right? So I was in New York for four years during school, and I stayed in New York about eight, nine years after that. So I got used to Donald Trump, mm. that Donald Trump, mm. you know, not the apprentice guy, but like the guy that was like in the New York Post and the rest of it. So like, I just... You know, it's, it's, I mean, you know, don't get mad at me if you voted for him, but I just don't think he's interesting enough to put in fiction. Mm. Um, I was looking at more of, you know, the, the different ways that people, and not even political people, just the, the narcissistic salesmen that are out there exploiting people's fears for their own, um, their own grandeur, their own profit, you know, uh, it's a, it's a unique kind of sociopathy. And so I looked at everything from historical figures, uh, you know, like George Wallace um, back in the uh, anti-segregation days, you know, just kind of the rhetoric of, of the, uh, uh, the kind of anti-civil rights movement of the time. I looked at some of Reagan's speeches, you know, like the kind of uh, the, the prejudicial smile that Reagan would give sometimes, you know, um, how, how he would couch the rising of America uh, in opposition to vast parts of the American populace, right? Uh, you know, and, and I, I watch a lot of political television and how people do that. And then thinking about cults and how cults work um, and, uh, and how people are led into self-destructive cycles by their own frailties and the kind of people that can hear the frequency of your fear, right? Because that's the power of a cult leader. The cult leader can hear your fear. And the cult leader can take that fear and tell you where you can aim your anger at. Because anger and fear are interconnected. They're related. Uh, I tell people all the time that anger is just fear in a black dress. <laughs> so it's very rare that you're going to find a person who's angry who is also not afraid. Uh, and... It's it, there. There are people who just have an innate ability to understand what what frightens you, and then they convert that fear into anger via their rhetoric, 
And then they tell you where to put that anger and they lie to you and tell you that that anger will give you power. Um, and that's as much, you know, Sheev Palpatine um, as it is, you know, any sort of modern conservative. I say the Palpatine thing. <laughs> Let the hate flow through you. Let the hate flow through you. We will build a wall. <laughs> Yo, here's a really funny thing. Um, so this is a, this is a total like sidebar, um, but I'm I you know I think Ian McDiarmid, uh, the actor who plays Palpatine, I think he's just fantastic. I think he's wonderful. And I was always like, man, like where did that character come from? And then he would like hear him in interviews, and he would be like, well, and George showed me a picture, and I just kind of came up with the voice that's like this. And I was like, oh, there had to be something. There had to be something. So one day I was doing research, and I stumbled on. Winston Churchill and there's there is a speech by Winston Churchill and I think it's if you like type in like you know we will fight you know on the land we will fight on the water or something it sounds just like Palpatine it's like we will fight them on the shores we will fight them in the seas. And you're like, oh shit. Palpatine sounds like Winston Churchill. <laughs> um, and I swear, like, you know, after this is over, look up Winston Churchill, like, we will fight speech, listen to it, and you can hear sections of it where he sounds just like Palpatine. Yeah, that's the whole Dunkirk thing. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, 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 it's amazing. It's like, oh, that's where Ian McJarvin got it. <laughs> Subconsciously, subconsciously maybe, but it's it's right there. But yeah, um, you know whether it's like you know Palpatine or Senator or you know Mitch McConnell, whatever it is, like it's all the same thing, right? It's all the I can hear your fear. I'm going to make it anger. You point your anger over there, and no matter how self destructive it is, I'm going to give you the lie that it's going to set you free for the low low price of dot 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 dot, right? And, and, and what you pay these figures can be clicks on a YouTube uh, or it can be money into a Patreon, you know, um, but people, they're so eager to eliminate that feeling of, of, of helplessness, whatever makes them feel afraid that they don't know that they're just continually handing over pounds of flesh to someone that only wants to use them for their own ends. I, I think that you know, you talked about the visceral nature of what you want to bring to your stories. And I feel like every single thing I've read of yours, fear is, is, is front and center. And I think it plays so much into, I, I saw so many parallels between American Carnage and Killmonger. And even Angel was in there in the mix because you have these characters who are, Acting in a lot of ways on fear. Angel Angel is fearful of the demon that's inside of him and that he'll never be able to redeem himself for these horrible actions, you know? Um mm-hmm. and, and and I saw Killmonger so full of rage and anger at a world that doesn't have a place for him. And kind of feeling like, Well, how do I how do I fit in? Well, I'm gonna carve this world up and make my throne, you know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I think a lot about fear. I think a lot about what we're afraid of and the actions that we take from fear. And I think part of it is we're in a culture of fear right now. You know, like it it doesn't take long 
to get to someone telling you what you should be afraid of now. Like after I came out of uh, NYU uh, film school, because I had a degree that was equally uh, expensive and useless, <laughs> I, uh, I had to eat, right? So I, I worked in advertising for a little bit. And I, I, I kind of liked it. You know, I liked the psychological aspects of it. But, and I was just low, 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 low level. I mean, they wouldn't even remember me on the books. I, I just did, um, uh, what, I, what I used to do was go out and collect information about subcultures because this was before the internet was, was a great harness for that stuff. So I used to go out and gather information about, you know, new kind of youth-focused subcultures and present that to the group so they could, like, pilfer from the aesthetics and uh, try to incorporate that into their, their pitches to clients and the rest of it. I was a culture hunter, basically. Hustler of culture! <laughs> um, so I did that, but when I started to see how a lot of advertising was about creating fear and exploiting it, I was like, this is dark. Man, um, especially when it came to products aimed at women. So, by and large, when when they sell things to men, they exploit the male fear of powerlessness, right? Like male products are about this will give you more agency. It will it will give you a better ability to get what you want, right? That's a lot of the underlying messages in marketing products to men. When they market products to women. It's all about them not being good enough. Mm. Has nothing to do with agency. Has nothing to do with ambition. Has nothing to do with success. It has to do with, are you good enough? Is your hair blah, 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 blah. Can you not lose those extra pounds? Is, is father time creeping up and showing up on your skin? It's just a lot of insidious. We have to make people feel terrible so they buy things that they don't really need, right? Uh, you know, that goes to your Polanyik and your Fight Club and your kind of nihilistic 90s. Um, but, you know, it, from those days, just kind of looking around and reading work like Marshall McLuhan's The Medium is the Message or reading like Jung, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, his work about man and his symbols or psychology and the occult. I, I've always been interested in, in humanity's relationship to fear. Because um, I've always felt that if I could come close to mastering my own fear, um, and I don't know if we can ever truly master our fear, but if I could at least make that a practice of mine, then I would be a little more powerful than people who couldn't. You know, And part of wanting to be a professional artist, whatever it is, uh, however one defines oneself, you have to buck a lot of trends and you've got to take a lot of risks. You got to make the unsafe choice while a lot of your friends make the safe choice. I'm successful now, but I wasn't successful for a long time. Uh, and I had friends that, you know, they were having kids, they were buying houses, and I was still like ramen noodles and hot dogs. I was a vagabond for a number of years trying to work in my craft and, and uh, kind of get into the, the rhythm and, the, and the, the rushing rapids of the business. So you spend a lot of time kind of scared. Uh, and you got to deal with that and you got to figure out a way to harness it and put it into your work or rationalize your way through it. Um, uh, and so it, it's kind of part and parcel, I think, of the journey itself. Um, and now that I have a platform and uh, I have a career and I'm grateful for, for all of that, I still like to engage that stuff because uh, first and foremost, I try to write stories that I would have needed years ago, if that makes any sense. Yeah. You know, I'm not a wise person 
but I, you know, I have some experience and I've overcome some stuff that is traditionally difficult to overcome. Uh, you know, grew up in the Midwest, single parent home, didn't have any money really growing up. I know what government cheese sandwiches taste like. Mm. Uh, you know, going from all of that, some people would say, you know, like, you know, me being black specifically made my journey harder. I can't tell you because no one ever like told me. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I assume it's true. There might be a little headwind. So having gone through uh, a lot of that stuff, now I try to write things that I think would have helped me, mm. you know, um, uh, kind of make my way through it. Uh, and that's really what uh, motivates me more than anything else. Because in a lot of ways, fellas, I I haven't made a feature film yet. That's true. But outside of that, I've kind of done everything 13-year-old me wanted to do. Wow. You know, I wrote comics, did that. I, I you know, I, I worked a television, working, working on a television show about comic book characters, did that. Uh, you know, like, I moved to L.A., I've got my, my you know, my right angle, you know, asshole American psycho apartment. Did that right? So I, when I was young, I was motivated a lot by trying to prove I could. Yeah, prove them wrong, man. You know, you can be, you can be. Well, I, I've kind of done all of that. So now uh, I'm really only motivated by, you know, do I think this is an interesting project? Do I think I can and turn it into something unique? And will it be an experience that would have helped me? when I needed some inspiration um, because, you know, no one ever, you know, never feel anything in a, in a vacuum, right? Someone's always feeling what you're feeling. It's just about connecting. Um, and so that's my motivation now. Wow. Uh, yeah. I, I think that, I think that that's incredible. And I can definitely say as someone who's, you know, uh, younger than you, um, your, your books are impacting at least me and based on the interactions that I see on Twitter and, and, you know, other forums and things like that, I think they're hitting the way you want them to. And that's great. That's great. That's great to hear. I mean, that's, that's really my whole intention of being in this game. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, I mean, it's gotta be so incredible to be able to be doing what you love. And you've talked about what Batman meant to you as a young person. And you, you know, you've, you, you, You've talked about how you could relate to that image of this boy sort of clutching his parents in the alleyway, you know, his dead parents, um, because of your experiences with your dad. And I thought a lot about how that, how that experience and, and its deep relationship, you, you created a deep relationship in your mind to, uh, to comics. And I've wondered sort of how that experience has, been a part of your journey and how deeply rooted in you um, comics are in your journey and what you're trying to give back because of sort of what you got from comics, in particular Batman comics? Mm. Well, you know, when you're a kid and you go through a tragedy, uh, you have to figure your own way through it. You know, you got to figure out how you're going to reconcile with it. Uh, And you get a lot of advice from well-meaning adults. But it, it doesn't really click until you can find a path. And so, I, you know, when, you, when, when you've just lost a parent and you read Bruce Wayne and he lost his parents, and Bruce kind of does what everyone tells you not to do. Uh, you know, he kind of 
stays mad about it and does sit-ups, right? <laughs> you're, you're like, okay, that sounds more real to me. I mean, my dad died of cancer. Like, no one shot him in an alleyway and you know, no pearls on the ground. But uh, I think a lot of people gravitate to comics in their adolescence because they they identify with the adolescent response to tragedy. Um, it feels real to them. It's aspirational in a, in a, in a way, you know, Um because a lot of adulthood is about finding finding a way to fit in, right? Like, you know, we consider a successful adult as an adult that can fit in. It's almost the more invisible you are, the more mature you are. You know, that's kind of mm-hmm. how a lot of people define things. But comic book characters always created their own space. They're always misfits in some way. They, uh, they never assimilated into normalcy uh, at the subjugation of their nature. And I think for an adolescent who's trying to deal with some things, and if you've gone through some difficult experiences as a kid, you might have a, it's a deeper understanding of the world, at least experientially, if not with any wisdom. Um, but you'll have a, a, a more intense understanding than a lot of people in your life will. And it's going to make you feel different than a lot of people um, because you've seen kind of what's on the other side, right? You've opened up room 237 in the Overlook Hotel and appeared inside of it, or you were forced to look into room 237. So when you return to the lobby of the hotel and everyone's just drinking champagne, you're like, I think this place is haunted. <laughs> um, so I think that's what draws a lot of people to work. And I think that's why people identify so strongly with this stuff. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're in a society that has less and less value for philosophy. Uh, hmm. And I, I, don't, I don't mean like the, the surface philosophy, you know, of, you know, worried about postmodernism you know, losing sleep at night because women want to be treated like people. I'm talking about like actual philosophy, like how we deal with evil, how we deal with death, how we find purpose, you know, um, that kind of stuff. We don't really do a lot of that. I think heroic stories, mythological stories are the last kind of, uh, temple of that kind of thought, you know, um, like, uh, uh, and I'm not trying to start problems here, but my biggest issue with The Last Jedi was that it wasn't really about anything. Huh. And I don't think it's a bad film. I think it's a very well-made film. Um, I just think it's a little absent of meaning. Interesting. Because, me- because meaning is hard, right? The hardest part of telling a Star Wars story isn't the lightsaber fight. It's not the space battle. It's not designing the locations and all of that. The hardest part is what does Yoda tell Luke in the cave, right? Like what is the wisdom of it? And it's challenging to do that. And, and I, I understand that's a difficult task for, for Ryan Johnson as a director. Um, but you know, I think we go to these things for meaning. Uh, and I think a lot of the reason why some people had a ooh, really adverse reaction to it, I didn't have that much of an adverse reaction to it. I just treated it as a piece of art. But I think people went there thinking that Luke was going to give them some wisdom. And they got the, they didn't get it, you know. Um, uh, and it's it's interesting the role that, that fiction takes now. I mean, if you look at like Star Wars, like broadly, it's got its own pilgrimage. You know, it's got its own sense of ritual. It's got its gospels, that which has been approved and that which is apocryphal. 
it's got its saints. Uh, someone asked me like, hey, Brian, would you ever want to write a Star Wars movie? And I was like, no, <laughs> because that's like adding a gospel to the Bible. Hmm. Someone's going to hate you when it's over. <laughs> right? Like, just, it's, just, it's different. Definitely. It occupies a different space. And I think mythological fiction does that, you know. Um, you know, it's like if you look at, like, people's relationship to Batman. You brought up Batman. Well, there's been a lot of recent talk about does Batman kill, right? Um, and I fall on the side of Batman does not kill. Uh, because Batman has set a limit for him to remind him of what side of the battle he is on. Hmm. And I feel like if you let Batman kill people, then he's just a man lost in his own mania, and he really is insane. Hmm. Right? He's he's not a man in recognition of the necessity of, of limitation. He's a man that's literally bullying the world with his billions because he was hurt when he was a child. And... I don't like to look at Batman that way. I like to make him more aspirational. Um, you know, uh, you learn more about a character from what a character won't do, right? Uh, what a character will do is interesting, but what a character won't do is revealing. That's how we understand who a character is, right? That's how we understand a Jedi from what they won't do. Uh, um, so, you know, these characters, they matter. And, I'm very aware of that, even thinking about Batman and the Outsiders and all that. I always want to make sure I honor the mythology. Uh, and I, I try to present things that have ideas and, and in, the, in the shallow ways I can, try to give people some ways to kind of reconcile with the things that uh, these characters are. I mean, with Killmonger, you know, I wrote that for angry me. Yeah. Because right? I'm sure there's a lot of angry me's out there. Uh, and, and I was a teenager and, you know, and, and I was trying to figure out everything. And I had a lot of rage against the world, just directed at a bunch of places. So I wanted to write a story that was true to that. But I also wanted to give a warning about where that leads. You know, um, power isn't always what you want. Uh, and the cost of power sometimes sneaks up on you. So, yeah, man, I mean, you know, I'm no philosopher. I'm just a dude. Uh, but... I, I do try to invest the work with some kind of stuff because I remember how important those stories were for me when I was growing up. Yeah, uh, that that resonates highly uh, with me. I, I as you we were talking, I'm reflecting on my own life, and I realize I've learned. I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, but I've learned more from the stories that I've grown up with than people that I've met in real life. You know, from even even from my parents and parental figures, I feel like I've learned a lot from comics, from comic book characters, but also movies and things like that. Like picked up a lot of sort of my sense of morality or whatever from fiction. And that's a very kind of it's a it's a it's a cool place in one way, but it's also a dangerous place. A lot of the discourse that I see about like you just mentioned Star Wars People are so invested that it becomes something, at least to me, it becomes something negative. It can become something destructive. And you, I guess the question is, 
do you feel responsible to walk a line on some level because you're obviously keenly aware of the importance that some of this fiction can have for people? You mentioned not wanting to write Star Wars for a similar reason. Is that something that you're thinking about? Well, you know, you don't want to self-censor, right? Because you want to create. Um, and you have to let your mind go free, really. Uh, so I, I take the stories where the stories want to go. Um, and that's a pact I make with imagination and also with the reader, right? Um, th- when I think about responsibility, I think more about my behavior. You know, I think more about how I am on social media, um, how I interact with people uh, when I see them at conventions or nowadays people have been finding me on the street um, uh, and, and that kind of thing. You know, like I, I do feel a responsibility to not fan the flames of conflict. Um, and so I try to keep my Twitter feed as positive as I can, as inclusive as I can, even though my work might be pretty stark um, and my work might make people feel away, as, as Drizzy would say. Uh, I try not to echo that um, as an individual so that people can can realize like, oh, someone can write a story that I don't like. Whether it's like you don't like what I did with Angel or you don't like American Carnage or Batman shouldn't do this. Um, but you can separate that from the nature of the person and and realize that no one is, is creating art to hurt you. Um, I think everyone's trying to express their truth in, in the best way they can, right? Uh, and like not wanting to write a Star Wars film isn't really about like... Um, a fear of the backlash as much as the work that it would take for me to find a philosophical core to build that mythology around. I think it would just be all encompassing, you know, and I don't think I'd be able to do anything else for a while. And I know how obsessive I can get uh, and I, I just wouldn't want to wade into it, but you know, you can't make choices because you're, you're scared of how people are going to receive them. Um, uh, but at the same time, I, I try to avoid just like poking at things, you know, in a petty way. You know, if I'm reading a book or I'm watching a movie and I see people taking cheap shots, even if I don't like the people that they're taking cheap shots against, right? Even if I think the people might deserve a little gut check, it takes me out of the fiction. And I think it reduces the fiction. And, and turns the art into something a little more petty. Um, so like when you look at American Carnage, my hope is that because it's a story about human psychology, about seduction, about evil, about identity, uh, about violence, about consequence, that 25 years from now, uh, it'll still feel relevant because it's a more universal piece. You know, it's not my way of getting back at people who think in ways I don't, I don't think that's not the point of it. Right. So, um, I, I do think about, uh, you know, how I, as an individual, as Brian Hill can make the environment around entertainment better. But when it comes to the work, man, you know, you gotta, you gotta spit, you know, the way the beat takes you, you can't, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you, you gotta, you gotta get it out there. Yeah. Man. If, the, if the beat, if the beat is taking you in a direction, you just gotta hit it, you know? 
I just try to, um, in the way I deal with people, not be a jerk. So uh, comics is a, it's a collaborative medium. And, and how do you sort of translate what it is that you're trying to say through, um, uh, through your artists or through, through your teamwork, your team members rather, um, like, uh, Landro, how do you sort of provide oh, him? Yeah, like, yeah. Well, you know, um, it's, it's taking like Leandro, the, uh, uh, penciler, um, anchor in American Carnage, for instance. I'm also a filmmaker and a photographer, right? So I can't draw. I mean, I can like, you know, thumbnail storyboards or whatever, but I wouldn't like put a price point on it. Um, but I know how to, I know how to create images, you know? And, um, because of that, I like to give artists leeway to tell the story visually as much as possible. Um, so like with Leandro on American Carnage, we talked a lot about influences and I sent him some JPEGs of films that totally I thought were around the same kind of space as how I saw the book. But I also didn't like I didn't I didn't I don't preach in my scripts. I don't say I need an angle of this and there. You know, if I'm ever talking about where the the quote unquote camera is in the comic book script, it's mainly because the next panel won't make sense if I don't see an element of this, right? Um, because I am trying to kind of block the reader through the action. But that being said, I always say like why I'm doing it, so that if Leandro has another way to get the same job done. Go do that way. And that's always my attitude with pencilers. It's, you know, when I'm working with an illustrator, I tell them, this is where I want to go. I want to go to Athens. Now, how we get to Athens is totally up to you. Um, this is a way I would get to Athens, but I'm not saying this is the path we have to take, right? You know, it's like, it's, 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 it's weird because working with, with illustrators on comics is similar to working with actors in a way because you, you want to give actors information, but you don't want to give them too much information. And, and you want them to explore the opportunities that they find, but then you also have to make sure that the story is getting told. And think. So it is a little kind of, it's, it's a little tricky-wicky to kind of, to kind of do it. But with like Gleb on Angel, you know, um, his style is very kind of open and very graphic. Uh, not in terms of like gore, just mean graphic. Like he, you know, his panels could be t-shirts. So you, you lean into that, you know, uh, as a writer, you respond to the way, the way the work is going. Um, you know, I, it's easier for a writer uh, in the process to make adjustments than it is for anybody else because it's easier to write than it is to draw. You know, I write on average four to six comic books a month. You know, an artist can only draw one really. And, and, and one in a month is kind of a lot. Sometimes you need six weeks, right? So, uh, I try to be the more malleable one in the process and work with however an artist likes to work. So the first question I ask them is how do you like to work? The two questions I ask an artist are how do you like to work and what do you hate drawing? <laughs> um, cause it's easy for me not to write what you hate drawing. Don't like drawing a lot of buildings. There's another, there's another way I can do it, you know? Um, and then in terms of the process, uh, I, I just kind of want to know, like, how do you like to work? You know, do you want to have conversations about it or do you just want to kind of go do your thing? And then I look at the work and I give you my thoughts, you know, like how do you like to do it? And, and that's just, I think, the the method I picked up. And a lot of that comes from my work in like independent film and, and dealing with actors and, and theater and all of that stuff. You know, you got to figure out how your collaborators um, uh, feel like they can do the best work. And uh, 
because it's easier for the writer in this process of comics to make adjustments, I'd rather make the adjustment based on what they want to do. And in that in that collaboration, like let's say you provide direction, uh, Landro goes in a, in a in a slightly different direction. It still sort of works, but as you continue to break down the panels, the pages, where does that where does that conversation lead? How does that develop uh, into the work? How does it deviate from the story potentially? Like open different avenues. Can you speak a little bit on that? Yeah, I think it's it's you have you have to know where you're trying to go, and I don't mean you have to have a fixed idea of the end moment of your issue or the end moment of your story. But I do think you have to know what the experiential destination is of the work. And if you do, then you can make adjustments if something is different than you anticipated. And in that difference is likely opportunity, right? Like I, I, I've been very lucky to work with artists who are very good storytellers. So it's, it's not like I'm in a situation where, you know, Leandro is making a choice that just has nothing to do with the story. No, I mean, he's a brilliant guy that spends time thinking about the script like a, like a great actor would. Uh, and they might come in, you know, with an idea, you know, like, well, what about this for the character? You know, and that might not be what you had in your head. You might have a different backstory for the character in your mind, but you got to listen. And, and you got to see what opportunities that opens up. And if it can lead to that same experience, then... Go ahead and let them do it, you know, um, see where it goes. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot about kind of harnessing the energy that's there. Uh, and people will always invest more into a choice that feels right for them. And that investment is going to result in better work. Uh, now, sometimes there are just critical aspects of the character um, that you have to kind of hold on to or, for plot reasons, you need things to be a certain way. But I find that because in general, I am as collaborative as I can be, when I do have those places where I have to pull back, it's, it's not a point of contention, you know? Um, you know, in filmmaking terms, it's like, if you've given the actors time on Monday and Tuesday to kind of experiment and work some stuff out, and you've listened to their ideas on characters, when you're on a hurry up schedule on Wednesday, they don't get mad at you if you can't do more than two takes because they don't feel like you're dictating to them. They just understand that today we got to move through this scene because we only got this location for six hours, you know? Um, and so that kind of collaboration is a two way street. Um, and they need uh, space for me to have the ability to put their own storytelling into the work. But they also understand that, that I need uh, space from them to be able to say, like, we just got to do it this way because I'm trying to set this other thing up and it needs to happen. So, uh, I, I know Landro from... That makes sense? Was, was that, like, intelligible, <laughs> no, what I just it said? No, it totally did, 100%. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and I, I think you, you couldn't have picked a better artist to sort of work with to be able to collaborate in that. Like, uh, Landro, I know him from uh, his work in The Discipline. Uh, I've talked to him about that, and he's very you know nuanced in his work and so like, I, what was the like why move forward with with Landro versus another artist like what attracted you to him to be able to communicate this story to audiences oh that's a, that's a great question right so this is this is a perfect example of how what's in your head isn't always the best way to go so when I was uh, working on American Carnage I had a lot of Sheriff of Babylon in my head mm. because I love I love that book 
Um, and that was the book that made me interested in, in doing like a, a drama thriller in comics. I tell Tom all the time that that was probably that of recent comic book influences is probably my strongest that book. Um, so when I was writing American Carnage, I had a very kind of uh, uh, realistic art style in my mind. Verisimilitude was in my head. I was thinking about Mitch, uh, Mitch Gerads and his work, right? When I was writing it and I, I was focused on, we're going to find a guy like Mitch. You know, we're going to, we're going to find a guy that, that, you know, is real, it feels real, it feels real, it feels real, it's real. Um, and then when I talked to Andy and Mark, uh, they were like, well, what do you think about Leandro? And I was familiar with his work from the Punisher. I didn't think we could get him, honestly, because I knew his, you know, he was a busy guy. Um, so I hadn't considered, you know, um, uh, him because I just didn't think scheduling was going to line up. But, uh, when I saw the work, I was like, oh, yeah, this is what we need because the book is too stark and ugly to be real mm-hmm. in that way. We need someone that can capture reality, but in an artistic graphic way, in an illustrative way, because otherwise it'll be an unrelenting experience on the reader and, and no one was going to want to go through that. Right. It'll be, it'll be too loud. The treble will be too sharp. Uh, and then, so I saw like, okay, I see what we can do. Um, and then, yeah, and I kind of fell in love with that idea. And then when his first sketches came in and the way that he would capture these characters in these iconic ways, you know, like, uh, um, in with just a small amount of lines, Jennifer Morgan would be there, you know, when Morgan would be there. Uh, and it reminded me of, of hundred bullets, you know, um, of Rizzo's work on that book or, uh, uh, Marcelo Fusen's work on Loveless, uh, a uh, Western from Azarello and Marcelo Fusen that I, I don't know if people spend enough time talking about, I'm a big fan of. Um, but it, it had that that kind of heightened reality quality uh, uh, that I think makes the book tolerable because if it had something that was too much rooted in verisimilitude, I just don't think it would be an experience anyone would want to go through. Um so yeah, so that's an example of you can have something in your head and it all makes sense when you're in your you know home office, you know, listening to music and, and writing, but you gotta, you know, you, you gotta be open to things. You know, it's just like directing. Like if you see an actor do something and that's not what you saw in your head, that line didn't get read that way. You know, I, you know, uh, uh, the, it was different. It was different when I wrote it. It was different when I wrote it. Open yourself up to what, what's happening though. Maybe that actor is reacting to the other actor in the scene. And maybe they're finding something different than what you had in your head. And definitely don't try to direct them back to what's in your head, but try to build on what's happening in front of you. Um, you always get the better stuff that way. There was a, just really quickly, you know, there was a moment in Titan season one when Ryan Potter uh, plays Beast Boy, Gar Logan, uh, and, uh, uh, and, you know, he and I got along real well because we're both gamers and everything. And we just kind of, you know, bonded around that stuff. And I wrote this little monologue for him and um, Rachel Raven, where he's talking about what it feels like to transform, you know, when he does his, his bestial transformations. And when I was writing it, I had a very specific way it was playing in my head. Because um, a lot of times when I'm writing, especially if I'm writing like screenwriting or whatever, the movie's playing in my head and I'm kind of writing the movie I'm already seeing in my mind. I think that's because I'm also a filmmaker, so I'm kind of making the movie as I'm writing the movie. But when he started doing it, he found things in the text that I didn't think were in the text. And he brought such a humanity to it. 
Um, and it was entirely different than I had conceived it in my mind. But it was far more effective when he did it. So you have to be knowledgeable about what you want. You know, you have to have a clear understanding about where you want to go. Um, but you also need to be open for the creative opportunities that arise from people doing different things than you expect or aesthetically marrying something to your comic book script that in your head didn't really go together. But then when you see it, you're like, oh, this, this goes together perfectly. In fact, Leandro elevates my work because the, the strength of his design influences and his compositional influences and, and how he can demonstrate emotion on characters' faces, much of the work that I do is taking out words, is cutting lines, because I don't need them. Wow. Yeah. I think that's uh, that's an approach that – like everyone has their own approach to how they work with artists. But I think when you make that comparison to a director with with the actors uh, on a particular project yeah, – I know. I, I, I had like a Tarantino moment <laughs> on your podcast, right? <laughs> Okay, let me tell you something, all right? So here's, here's the funny fucking thing, okay? So when I was making Pope Fiction, right? <laughs> Sam came in and he was like, hey, I want to say bad motherfucker. So like, yeah, like, yes, but it's it's similar to that. It really is. I mean, like, from one thing, you know you know everything, right? Like, like if it's music, if you study music long enough, you'll understand storytelling, photography, and filmmaking. Uh you know, if you study photography long enough, you understand writing and music, right? Like everything is everything eventually. Um, and so all these disciplines kind of interact with one another. Uh, and I think because I my art training was in a collaborative medium, filmmaking, uh, I naturally kind of lean towards collaboration. You know, I wasn't a dramatic writing student where I spent uh, uh, all my time just working on my stories, you know, in a, in a word processing program and then sharing them with, uh, uh, you know, a small group of people twice a week and then going back to being alone. Like I trained creating art with other people mm-hmm. in my formative years. And I think that that perspective is a state with me. But you know what? I think that, I think that there are a lot of directors you know, I've I've read stories about directors who have been kind of, you know, draconian and very much like get out of this what I want out of it, right? And I think what makes you and there are other there are others who have your similar mentality, but what brings you to the table, at least in my mind, is the fact that you have always had to kind of find the middle ground, if you will. You've 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 always been the person who okay, here I am growing up in this place where everyone is so different. How do I make myself someone who can who can move, you know, in in this, you know, who can find who can find the spaces in which we are alike, and bring that out? And I think, well, for, for yeah. sure, like, yeah, you you do have to find common denominators. You know, when you grow up in the Midwest, and you know, you're a black kid in the Midwest, and you're into like Star Wars or whatever it is, um, you have to find common denominators because you're going to be different than a lot of people. Uh, but at the same time. You do have to have a persistence of vision, right? And you have to you have to know what you're trying to achieve, and sometimes that means you have to kind of put your foot down um, gently because you would you, you you need this to be seen in a certain way. You know, you need this moment to be executed in a certain way. 
And it's all about finding the spaces where they're like building in room for invention with your collaborators, but also having a firm idea of what you want. Because the other trap you can fall into is you can be too malleable. You can be too open. And then your collaborators think that you maybe not, you don't know what you want to do, right? And you might think like, oh, well, this is going to be a really nice environment for everyone, a collaborative environment. But situations require leadership. Mm. Uh, And in a lot of ways, the writer is often the leader of the comic book. In fact, Andy Corey said as much to me, you know, he's like, when when we first started, I was making the mistake of not communicating how much I liked the work that was coming coming back hmm. um and andy was like you know uh if you love it let them know because the feedback matters and and that was something that i had to learn like what my my fault as a a collaborator is i tend to praise with silence and uh i, I i'm like well if i'm not saying anything then, then i like it right um but people like to hear that you like it you know um, so that they know that that you're pleased by how things are going, uh, especially if you're directing actors. Like actors like to know they did a good job, you know. Um, and uh, so I have to, I always have to uh, tell myself that, like, tell them, tell them you like it, tell them you like it, tell them you like it, you know. Um, that way they know that they're going in the in the right direction, um, that the project's going in the right direction. But yeah, it's it's a it's balance, right? Because you want to be open. But you also want to make sure you know where you want to go. Uh, Ridley Scott's one of my favorite filmmakers. And he storyboards everything. Um, he, he went to art school, so he's a very, very good uh, draftsman. And he goes in with these firm ideas of visually what he wants to capture, how he wants to shoot a scene, how he wants to block a scene, all of those things. Um, and the actors know that he knows what he wants to get. So knowing that he understands what he wants to do, they feel more comfortable playing around in the space that he gives them to play around because they know that they're not wasting time and they're not, not running in a circle. Right. So it's that delicate balance, man. You know, it, it, it's, it's, you, you have to find that, that, that <laughs> what's what's Xavier say in first class? You have to find that space between rage and serenity. Yeah. <laughs> right. To, to move the satellite dish. Yeah. So that's what a lot of it is. Like you have to find that space between this is how it has to be for the art that I'm trying to create with you. And, ooh, let's take advantage of this this new approach that I haven't considered. So I, I just wanted to ask you uh, a couple more questions uh, and, and take it away from comics just a, just a little bit. So m- music, you've, you've mentioned music and I know that you, you do a little bit musically um can you talk to me about music and especially how it influences you i always love to hear about how the music if at all plays into the work whether it's what you listen to when you write or you know what's Mm. in your mind when you're thinking about a a story and and sort of putting it together uh can you speak to that well yeah i mean music has always been a big part of my creative process i mean when i was a kid uh, one of my favorite things to do would be to go get soundtracks, movie soundtracks, scores from the library. On, I had a little Fisher Price record player, a little brown and white record player. Um, and I would get the 33s and I'd bring them home and I would listen um, to the scores. Because listening to the score 
helped me re-experience the film. It's almost like you listen to the score and the movie plays in your mind's eye. Yep. You know? And it's like a different kind of echo of the cinematic experience. And um, I'd taken some piano lessons, you know, a lot, but enough. I had a little, little keyboard, a little small keyboard, but it was precious to me. It probably wasn't any bigger than the the keyboard that uh, I, I type on now, you know, at my, my desk. But it was, uh, it was a little keyboard, and I would just try to, by ear, play some of the themes that I would hear. You know, like play the Halloween theme, you know, or play the Force theme or the theme from Superman. And my mother would get me these um these little books, they're like little music books, and they had notes in them, and I could read a little music because uh, I was in, you know, I had a recorder, uh, like a, a flute thing when I was in grade school. So I, mm-hmm. I could read music in like a rudimentary one. So I used to, uh, you know, kind of open that up and like, ooh, I want to I want to try to play this. I want to try to play the Imperial March, you know. So music was how I experienced a lot of cinema. Uh, you know, uh, it was a big part of that that thing. So then when I went to NYU, and I thought I was going to be an independent filmmaker. I mean, I, I, I really thought I was going to be a guy who, like, came out of NYU and wrote scripts and then tried to raise some money locally and, like, make little independent films. Um, and John Carpenter was a big influence on me because um, his movies, I just saw his movies a lot because they were genre movies and they would play um, in St. Louis where I'm from. They'd play on the weekend. So you get, like, a John Carpenter double feature of, like, Prince of Darkness and Halloween or something. Uh, and his movies that had a very signature sound, that synthesizer sound, him and Alan Howarth um, created that that thing, which to me speaks to some of my favorite moments in cinema. You know, uh, so I thought like, okay, well, I won't be able to afford uh, a score because I don't know how one can pay for that. So I guess I got to learn how to do it myself. Um, and, and, and I've been in bands. Uh, I was like the. I sang in a Pearl Jam cover band for a bit. And I was in like a, you know, like another thing, like a little quite quasi metal thing for a second, and then I sang weddings a little bit, you know. So um, I I wasn't uncomfortable in front of the microphone, and I just like studied music, just kind of on my own, not in a real formal way, but just kind of understanding kind of songwriting and how that goes, and uh, and I would would just write little like pieces, you know, on on GarageBand. Then I started using Logic, and I would kind of do these things. Um, because I just thought that like, okay, well, I don't know how to get the kind of music I want. So I will just have to be able to do it myself. Um, and it starts to influence your storytelling because you start thinking about things in terms of musical structure, loudness and softness, minor key and major key, harmony and melody, um, how these things percussively, you know, kind of go together, um, how you can use the rhythm, the musical rhythm of a narrative to create an experience for a reader. You know, and I get really nerdy um, uh, about that stuff. You know, you know, thinking about like, you know, uh, how different rhythms kind of affect people and why things are so sticky. You know, and and, and what that can say for your storytelling. Like, um, for instance, like the Halloween theme is in a weird tempo. Um, I forget which one it is, but the you know da 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 right? Like it's, it's like in a five, six tempo or something. And it's just, it's really strange and it's kind of unending. It's hard to know when it starts and when it stops. So it feels like it's like an endless loop and kind of lulls you into a bit of a trance state. Well, funnily enough, right? If I start doing well, what is that? Well, now think to Dark Knight Rises. 
basara, basara, deshi, deshi, basara, basara, yeah. deshi, deshi, right? It's the same thing because Hans Zimmer understands that musically as well. And so that's why that Bane theme has such force because it's like this unending flow of power sonically, right? So, you know, thinking about how those things affect experiences is, is a big part of it. And with comics, you know, the it's it, it, there's no sound. So it doesn't work in a direct translation. But I do think about a comic book issue in terms of a song, you know, kind of when I look at my outline and look at how I'm structuring it, I'm like, okay, where's my bridge? You know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus out, right? That would be a big two comic for me, you know, more traditional structure. But then if you look at like, you know, kind of a more indie comic, like American Carter, I might feel more like a Pink Floyd song, you know, where it's a little spacey for a little bit before it gets in the chorus and all that. So yeah, yeah. Um, um, I do think kind of musically and rhythmically, um, uh, and it's, uh, it's a thing. And I, I still write like songs and stuff. And, um, you know, I got, I got like R and B stuff I put together just to see if I can do it. Oh uh, man. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can, it's easy to hear if you go to, uh, I think it's, my website is the owl and serpent.com. Uh, if you go there and click on the music section, you know, there's some, there's some tracks I'm, I'm working on uh, for like a little EP of Los Angeles inspired music. Um, it's like, and that stuff is influenced by like Frank Ocean, The Weeknd, stuff like that. And uh, hopefully I'll be directing a, uh, a little indie horror feature uh, this year, um, like, you know, around fall. And I'm uh, planning on writing a score for that, already kind of working on some of those themes. And that'll be more of a synthesizer, dark synth wave, Brad Fidel kind of influence thing. Brad, Brad Fidal is uh, yeah. the guy who did the Terminator, uh, Fright Night. Um, great, great, just great composer. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I mean, that's, that's yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a, a, a part of my process. For sure. So when's the, uh, when's the Drake collaboration going to come? <laughs> Drizzy. Yeah. Um, uh, I, you know, the problem with Aubrey is, you know, man, <laughs> he just, in that studio, man. So, you know, he's, it's, it's hard to deal with him in the studio. <laughs> is that um, so? But we'll try, you know, we'll try to get something together, man. Try to get something together. Oh, man. So, you, uh, you've, you've talked about Tool and, and how... Um, oh, yeah, Tool. Huge influence. Yeah, and, and same for me. Tool, Tool in a lot of ways, uh, changed my life. And I, I just, I don't even know what the question is. I just kind of wanted you to talk about Tool with me for a second. Well, t- well, Tool, you know, so when I when I was coming out of working in advertising, um, I was reading a lot of uh, psychological-themed uh, uh, works. Um, I was interested in that. And, and very quickly, you get to the esoteric side of psychology. So, like, if you start reading Jung, you might start with Man and His Symbols, but then you'll get to psychology and the occult. And then you'll get to the Red Book, you know, which is like Jung's own personal chronicle of his fever dreams. Um, and, and all of that, you know, and then you start getting into other things, other like branches of esoteric thought and, and consciousness and the rest of it. And at the same time, I was listening to Tool, uh, and they were, uh, you know, putting things in their work, you know, like 46 and two, um, and, and all that. And the, the poetry of their, of their lyrics kind of spoke to me. Um, and there's a lot of meaning there, uh, and, and, and like the raw emotion of it, it was, it was, the tools like this combination of like intellectual stuff 
but with like really raw, expressive, emotional renderings on it. And and then their their song structure is really interesting. You know how they they use minor key, how they use percussion, how they bring in cultural uh, kind of world sounds into their thing. Yeah, uh, so I, uh, I I still you know I listen to them a lot um, and kind of use them as uh, inspiration to get me into an emotional place. And Maynard's just a fascinating dude. Yeah. you know, um, uh, uh, it's kind of like you know the, the wine. And, the the rest of it um i think he's like doing jujitsu now or something like i think everybody's doing jujitsu now so. <laughs> uh, <laughs> i did taekwondo though so you know uh, um i'm not unfamiliar with the mat or being knocked out but um <laughs> yeah yeah i mean you know it's just they're they're like one of my like i think the tool a tool the cure um that kind of thing uh that kind of vibe is part of it so for angel you know, I'm listening to a lot of Tool and Perfect Circle to just kind of get the lyrical melancholy of it all. Yeah, I actually just saw Perfect Circle perform uh, last year. It was incredible. Oh yeah, 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 man. Yeah. Um, and I was listening to The Grudge while I was reading uh, Killmonger, and I. Oh yeah, that's good. That's that's that, that's a good pairing. That's good wine and cheese yeah, right there. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then I, I just wanted to ask, you mentioned that you were into video games and, uh, I am. We're, we're big on video games too on this podcast. So just, you know, what games are you playing and you know, what, 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 when, it, when, it, when you sit down with the controller in your hand, what's on the console, what's on the computer, what, what speaks to you gaming wise? Well, I'm more of a console gamer than a PC gamer because I'm a Mac person. So there are no games, <laughs> uh, on, on the Mac. Um, Lately, I've been playing Division Two. Uh, I I like the Division because you can sort of sip it, you know. Like um, you you can walk around, you can pop off some shots, the numbers go up, you get yourself a little skull cap, you feel like you did something. Right. Um, and because my schedule does not allow me to play a lot of games, um, I mean, I, I can cheat and, and find some time to do it, but. It's hard to get those marathon sessions in, um, but you know, like I, I like, I, I like the loot shooters are okay. You know, depending on the world, as long as the world is interesting, um, and the carrot that they put in front of you is interesting enough, then I can play it. Um, Division two spoke to me. Anthem really didn't. Uh, I don't know. Like, a hey, the, the 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 main character being in that suit the entire time, it just felt like you know, like old Legos or something. Like, I don't know. Like, it just didn't grab sure. me. It felt very imp- impersonal. And, uh, and and maybe maybe I didn't see enough Robotech as a kid to get the hype, but I didn't really get the hype just off of what the gameplay seemed like. And, it, and the rest of it just seems like such a mess that uh, I haven't even touched it. Um, the, uh, uh, what's the From Software? Die Twice? Like, Sekiro? Yeah, Sekiro. Is, yeah. is that it? Yeah, 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 I want to dig into that. Like that looks like my speed um, because I can put that focus in there. But I haven't, I haven't picked that one up yet. Uh, you know, I have so many games on my um, uh, my my drive because I, you know, I have I like I have an Xbox, whatever, and and the, and the PlayStation, whatever. So you know, you start stacking up these PS Plus games, you start stacking up these uh, Xbox Game Game Pass games, and then you never actually play anything. <laughs> it's, like, it's like it's turned into Netflix, man. Like. You know, like you just have like there's this game with a uh, Rutger Hauer in it that's like a cyberpunk kind of 
uh, point and click adventure style thing that looks cool that I haven't really fired up. Um, you know, I still have to finish Horizon Zero Dawn. I started it, never got through it, didn't finish God of War. I'm turning that dude doesn't finish video games. I used to be like dedicated. I used to start something up and then just crush yep. it. Um, now, I've, I think I've restarted Witcher 3 like seven times. Because <laughs> you get to that one part when you're walking around the town and you're, you're like, I think it was, his character's name is Dandelion, I think. And it's like 22 dialogue tree conversations in a row and it kicks me in the nuts. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, do I have to talk to somebody else? Yes, I do. And then you're just like, I'm not doing this. And then you forget how to play and then you never, then you gotta start over again. Um, but yeah, like that, you know, I, I tend to do more single player than multiplayer, unless it's like Forza. I like, I like Forza Horizon a lot. So I'll do oh, uh, online yeah. racing there. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll squat up in Division 2 just with Brandos, uh, uh, if, you know, you know, playing that. But yeah, I don't do a lot of like multiplayer stuff. Um, because I still like diving into narrative worlds and and experiencing the storytelling in games. Um, so, you know, just kind of playing like like PUBG is cool, like Fortnite is cool, Apex is cool, but that won't hold me because just the com- like the just the competitive aspects of can I shoot face better than other guy? Um, I don't know, man. Like I I just don't stick there. You know, like it, it's same thing with fighting games. Like I play them and I get I get hot and cold on them. Like I was really into injustice for like a month. Yeah. You know, and I was like really like getting my Wonder Woman vicious. Yep. <laughs> and I'm trying to get the combos in. And then I, um, <laughs> and then I just, you know, I, I'm not Sonic Fox, man. I can't stick with it like that. Mm-hmm. Like I, 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 like Mortal Kombat 11, like I'll probably pick it up and I'll probably be, you know, smoking it hardcore for like a month. And then I, you know, um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, um, Red Dead Redemption Two was probably the best experience I had last year with a game. Um, if I had to pick like a, a game that was like whoa, I think Red Dead Redemption Two was like whoa for me. I was like, holy shit, this is something else. Yeah, yeah. I um... online's a mess. Leave it alone, but... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get around. The single player is good. I didn't. It's good. I mean, if you like westerns, man, like the storytelling that Rockstar does in that game is 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 pretty pretty bananas. Um, they got to update their engine though, because those tank controls that they have, like like, is real sluggish in that Rockstar way. Um, and so there's some like control things that feel real antiquated. You know, like people characters move better than this now, right? Um, <laughs> And they overanimate a lot, so it'll take like two steps for for Arthur Morgan to stop sometimes, and and that gets weird. Um, and uh, uh, they also have like mission fail states just all over the place. Like it's you know whenever you're playing a Rockstar game, it's this weird like dichotomy between playing it sandbox style, where you're just walking around doing whatever you want, however you want, dealing with it. And then doing the missions, and the missions, if you if you walk like a little bit off of the path, they'll put you in a fail state. Wow. You know, if you if you do like one little thing they don't want you to do, and, and so many games now allow you to approach things different ways. You could do stealth way, you could do direct way, you could do this, you can go around, you, can, you know, like the Witcher, you know, will let you kind of go grab a thing from wherever and come back and then finish it. Um, so that stuff feels really antiquated and kind of 
strangely, you know, draconian. But um, yeah, I think Red Dead is good. Well, if you happen to pick up Mortal Kombat 11, uh, I am happy to give you that work at any given time. Just let me know. Oh, right on. Well, on, on PlayStation, which is probably where I'll, I'll pick that up, uh, yeah. uh, I'm Optimus Grimy. Optimus Grimy? Yes, I'm the Grimy as well. <laughs> well, uh, I'm going to give you these hands, definitely, because I'm on PlayStation as well. Uh, oh, there you go. All right. No, we, yeah, we, we can do some beat that. Yeah, yeah. We should do, like, I should, we should totally do that. We should, like, organize it and get, like, a lobby. Yeah. Of listeners and whatever, yeah. and just find find a time to just kind of throw down uh, and talk shit, and, and we can stream it actually. Yeah, that would be dope. Uh, cool, that would be dope. Yeah, um, um, I'm, I might reach out to Ryan and see if I can get him because uh, he he talks a lot of gang about how good he is at, at Street Fighter, but I don't know. I might have to go ahead and sun him. With Street Fighter as well, man. We could do that. I'm all, I'm a real main as well. That could happen. You might have to get the Satoshi no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Talk about Yang. He saw a lot of stuff. I was like, I don't know, son. Watch out, watch out. Old man might get you. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, cool. I'll I'll definitely uh we'll definitely talk about that. Um and then my my last last question for you, uh, and then Phil's gonna close us out, is what are you reading these days, comic book wise? What do you get to read when you have a chance? Oh, um well I tend to read a lot of old things a lot more than I read a lot of new things. But I will say that uh Kelly Thompson is doing a great Jessica Jones story. It's digital. Mm. Uh, and and I, I, Marvel's putting it up digitally. You know, I got the Marvel like subscription. Or whatever. Um, so I get to it there. But it's fantastic storytelling. I think Kelly is a great writer. Um, and I think this is career high work from her. Um, it's like Jessica Jones, like the purple something or other. Um, the purple angel, the purple plow. No, it's, Jessica, it's, just, it's Kelly's Jessica Jones story. Purple's in the title. I'll definitely check that out. Um, you know, Tom's work on Batman, yep. I, I really enjoy. Um, I, I admire his approach to storytelling a, a lot. Um, high level, uh, Rob Sheridan's book, I think is really cool. It's Vertigo book. You know, I, I think that's, uh, super neat. Um, it's good. It's like sci-fi, man. It's like, it kind of reminds me of like the kind of 80s sci-fi I would watch on cable as a kid, you know, to kind of turn on HBO and like, oh shit, doom. You know, yeah. oh man, dreamscape, like some, some old shit like that, right? Um, but it's cool. It's uh, it's definitely got that vibe. Um, and then like you know, a lot of it's been classic works, bro. Like Elektra Assassin, I read that probably like once a week. I read some of it. It's an old Frank Miller, Bill Sienkiewicz Elektra mm-hmm. work that I think is really, really ahead of its time. Um, been reading a lot of Hellblazer, uh, kind of starting from the beginning, you know, and 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 putting that in, in my head. Um, and that's been, uh, you know, really educational you know, seeing what, you know, you know, Garth and Alan and, and those guys were doing Constantine back in the day. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of it, you know, like, uh, um, uh, for prose stuff, cause I'm going to recommend a book without pictures cause that's part of what I do. Yeah. Uh, there's a, my favorite writer is probably Amy Hempel who writes uh, short stories and they're not genre stories. They're like just very kind of human stories, but they are excellent and, and super easy to read. And she just put out a new book of short stories. Um, but she also has kind of a compendium, like a, um, the complete work of Amy Hempel. I think it's like 14 bucks. It's a perfect addition to a library. If you just want to read like 
stories that sort of peel away the layers of humanity, I can't recommend Amy Hemp enough. Um, and beyond that, you know, I've been studying my making of uh, Blade Runner 2049 mm. um, book and just looking at, you know, like the, the, the creative choices uh, that led to the making of that film. And uh, I have a, a paper copy of the screenplay as well from Michael Green. So I've been studying that as well. And that's kind of been what's uh, in my, uh, on my desk. Sounds like more than enough to keep any one person busy. Yeah, you know, you know. All right, Phil, jump in. All right, let me uh, hit you with one last question here. Are you ready? Yeah. All right, listen. Mm-hmm. I like to pull up some questions from Yahoo Answers. You know, these are people who are in need, who need some help. I got one here. Maybe you can help this random person out on Yahoo Answers, okay? Okay. okay. The person asks, if Batman parents are died then how was he born it doesn't make sense how mm. dying parents can have children did they think this through uh well in order to answer that effectively i'm gonna have to access the uh, the wisdom of detective rust cole from true detective <laughs> um okay you see the problem is that life is in a straight line. Life goes forward and then life turns right back around. And what is born is also dead the moment it is born. <laughs> and we all dream of having parents and being the son, having the father and the mother. But we come to realize that over time, we are our own parents. We are our own cycle. And it's all a dream. If you're listening, a monoboat who asked that question, I hope that helps. <laughs> now, hang on a second. Wasn't that Cooper from Interstellar? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's the all McConaughey. Like, my favorite McConaughey is the commercial, the Lincoln commercial, where I think he's like some kind of spirit that comes into somebody's house and plays pool. And then, like, sinks all the pool balls and then looks at it and is like, yeah, I sure did that. <laughs> and then he leaves and, like, leaves in his, like, spirit Lincoln. <laughs> it's amazing. It's, I'm not sure what they're selling, but it's amazing. I have to find more pool tables. <laughs> you know there's an app that you can get. I forget what it is. It's one of those apps that helps you sleep where uh, one of the things you can play is McConaughey reading you a story. <laughs> and then you what? can just fall asleep. Yeah, totally. It, totally. It's actually, it's an app. Like, look it up. Look up, like, McConaughey sleep story. And one of them is, is it's Matthew McConaughey. He's like, uh, Matthew McConaughey, I'm going to read you a little story. And it, it, he just reads a story and you can go to sleep. Wow. I got to find that. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, dude, dude is dude is on his game. <laughs> dude is he living his best That's life. That's when Baloo taught Mowgli the bare necessities. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, Brian, honestly, man, uh, this has been an absolute pleasure. I think we could sit here and talk all day. Um, I I want to end uh, by just telling you that uh, your work has significantly impacted me as a person and uh it it the thing that i love the most about your work is that 
in a way that a lot of other comics don't and it's no it's it's no shade but um a lot of comics don't penetrate especially as we get older you need different things and mm. your work especially with like killmonger american carnage causes me to look in myself and that's the thing that i'm looking for from fiction and i'm very very thankful for what you have done and what you continue to do with your work um, that inspires thought and inspires change and uh, i'm very grateful to have uh, someone like you working in the industry because we need these voices and so thank you so much for that for everything that you've done and uh, for joining us on this podcast it, it means a lot to me and i really really appreciate it oh that's really kind and thank you guys for having me you know i mean i'm I feel like I'm getting closer and closer to uh, the kind of storyteller I want to become every project. So I appreciate people that have taken the journey with me this far, and I hope people continue to take the journey with me in the future. We on the Comics Pal certainly will be, and uh, hopefully we can have you on again sometime and uh, talk more about movies and stuff because uh, you, you obviously have a lot of a lot of influences and a lot of stuff to say. So uh, um, hopefully we can do this again sometime. For sure, for sure. Awesome. Thank you so much, Brian. Is there anything you want to plug before you jump? Just your website, your Twitter, all that kind of stuff? I mean, people can find me on Twitter, uh, at Brian Edward Hill. That's Brian with a Y. Um, and I've got Batman and the Outsiders coming in May. Um, and I've got some unannounced stuff. But you follow me on Twitter, and, and I'll make everybody aware of, of what's going on. And currently, I'm writing Titans season two. So go on and get your DC streaming service subscription. So you can see, uh, the further adventures of Robin beast boy, Starfire, and Raven. Um, besides that, just thank you to everyone out there. Who's picked up a book of mine, read a book of mine, hollered at me on Twitter. I love everybody. And I really appreciate it. Thanks again, man. Take care. And, uh, we'll talk again soon. Appreciate it. Alrighty. Cheers, hey, man. Thanks for your time. No problem. Well, Sean, that was a really good interview. Uh, really happy that happened. By the end there, I kind of got the impression that maybe you'd take it easy on him in Street Fighter. No. Uh, there is no one I would take it easy on in Street Fighter. Uh, not, not even Brian Edward Hill, who I admire so much, would I spare one punch. Uh, if we were to to do battle uh he would definitely get these hands <laughs> and i feel good about it you're truly a monster among men my friend you know me uh so hopefully you guys enjoyed that interview that was an exhaustive interview i think we we got to uh, a lot of stuff and yet i feel like we could have spoken for another two hours mm. um so hopefully we can have him back on here soon um because of that, we're going to definitely uh, do a truncated show, uh, which we always kind of planned for. Do want to get to the pals polls, though. Um, so to start, we've got uh, Kale, who chose Dick Tracy, Dead or Alive. Hey, I forgot what my polls were this week, so this is news to me. <laughs> um, so this Dick Tracy series is written is it was written by Mike Allred and Lee Allred, um, who traditionally I go to them for their art, but um, but but for this one they they picked someone else for art. Um, 
and man, I just love Dick Tracy. Uh, Rich from Tommaso. the movie Rich Tommaso. I don't think I'm familiar with him, but that's I'm sure that's fine. I will be after this. Um, I yeah, I'm all about Dick Tracy. So, um, and with the all reds attached, I'm I'm here for it. Awesome. Very, very cool. Um, and you also chose Scarlet Volume 1. Hey, where the hell's Brian Michael Bendis been? What you mean? He's been doing stuff at Marvel. He's been doing stuff at DC. I'm looking for the real Brian Michael Bendis here. Give me that good shit, BMB. Well... Uh, Scarlet is probably up your alley then. Uh, I was a big reader of Scarlet when it first came out. So this volume is actually a reprint. Um, I, I through, was going to say, DC. It, it has a, a big history, doesn't doesn't it? And it was it kind of took a backseat to all his superhero stuff. So, well, um, actually, this was a part of, like, Marvel had an icon, I think it, I think it was called mm-hmm. Icon yeah. Imprint. Yep. Yeah, Icon. Yep. And... Uh, it was a way to appease creators who wanted to do creator own stuff but couldn't work outside of Marvel. So instead of mm. you know letting them work for Image or whoever else, they just created Image in house, and mm. uh, that didn't last. But this was one of the better things that came out of that. Um, it's Brian Michael Bendis back with Alex Maleev, and it is very, very, very good. Sick, can't wait. Awesome, uh, and then. I chose uh, Heroes in Crisis number eight. Uh, look, we have we have talked. We have talked. So, did you miss something below that, or are you look at? I, I know the list is pretty exhaustive, but it's, that can't be right. That you wanted that. It's probably a typo. Yeah. You know what? I I chose it deliberately. I did you? I, oh, I see what you you probably hotkeyed the copy paste uh, yeah, and I, I copied was, the yeah. last thing you from like last month or something. Mm-hmm. That's no, what it was. No, uh, despite the fact that you know we have not had the kindest of words to say about Heroes in Crisis, apparently this is the issue that will reveal all. And oh, this I, is the issue. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'm ready for all to be revealed at this point. I, I'm ready to see what it is that King has to say and what ultimately happened in Sanctuary. And although it's taken eight issues to, you know, get anywhere, if if what I'm reading is the case, then maybe this is the time where this thing turns around, one issue before the end. Uh, and we'll see if that's too little too late. Yeah, you know, sometimes your toilet's clogged and you're not sure what's clogging it, so then when you unclog it, you, all is revealed and you see what clogged it, and it's like, oh, it was just shit. <laughs> you, have to, you have to go all the way to eight, issue eight to get to the shit. Very nice. Uh, and then I also chose Criminal number four, which is something that I've been enjoying nice. quite a bit more. Uh, Criminal is absolutely fantastic. Uh, that's Ed Brubaker. That's Sean Phillips. Uh, you know the the classic team up back on a monthly comic, which is you know not their typical jam, at least not with Criminal. And um, I'm loving it. It's been amazing. If you know Criminal, you can you can have a good guess as to what you're gonna get. So far, every issue has been different. Although there is a a connective tissue and a narrative that's being woven here. 
So mm-hmm. well worth your time. And it's still early enough on that if you want to jump in, you only need to pick up the three prior issues. Having a knowledge of the wider criminal world is good. Um, but if you don't, you'll still get a lot out of this. So big time recommendation. There are only three or four of those trades out, right? Uh, I think it's a, it's a little more than that. I, or am I thinking I, of something else? Another Brubaker. Yeah, because Criminal right. has like several different volumes and it follows different okay. characters. So th- I'm pretty sure there's more than four uh, out there in the wild. But even then, it's not a ton of stuff that you need to work through. Because it's not like volume one is not 20 issues. You know, it's, it's they're very, mm-hmm. you know, condensed for, for comics. So. But for, so for this week, instead of a, a pals polls, I, I wanted to sort of just give like a brief um, review on Beverly by Nick Drasno and published by John and Quarterly, which I had mentioned out in our Instagrams where you know, I try to pull some more eclectic books. And um, this is just one that had been sitting in my bookshelf for a while. I'd been trying to jump in, uh, but other stuff has kind of gotten in the way. And I finally did. And uh, it was an interesting book. It's one of those D&Q stuff that you kind of go for their more experimental things i think and Mm. uh this was definitely one of those experimental things Uh, a lot of it was touching upon this odd connection between sex and violence within a suburban community Uh, but at the same time sort of the men the way it affects your mental state and how that affects your perception of the world and it was just really dark but drawn these uh these really bright colors in a super minimalist style like this this artist seemed to be uh, almost like a graphic designer a lot of stuff was like really boxy uh wasn't necessarily like a from coming from like a fine art perspective um and yeah it was just again one of those weird D Q books that you kind of like pick up um and this as an introduction to nick drasno as a writer because he did write uh, Sabrina, which I believe won an Eisner in 2017 or 2018, um, or it won something. And so I, I'm, I'm interested to, to see where he went from this into becoming uh, an award-winning writer in, in his next book in Sabrina. So uh, something I'll probably pick up later down the line. What uh, What about this made you bring it here as opposed to just leaving it in our Instagram? Uh, I just I wanted to talk about it. It's it's a it's a thing that like. A lot of the times, week to week, you know, uh, you'll only get a like a glimpse, or I'll usually bring up like a number one for something that's a little off, or, yeah. or something that's a little you know outside of the the big two realm. Um, but yeah. this is just like something that is completed that I wanted to sort of just share. Listen, he's he's in mourning in light of what we're going to talk about in the news, Kale. It's true. I just I need a win today, man. He needs a win. Is it is it mourning or is it confusion? Both. That's a good question. And attraction. That's the confusion part. That's the confusion part. (laughs) (laughs) I'm attracted to it, but I don't know if I should be or shouldn't. Uh, So before we talk about what they're referencing, uh, the Swamp Thing stuff, I do want to finish my statement. Uh, With Fear Escape, we're going to review it. We're still very into it. Um, Well, this is actually the last issue for now, which came as a shock to me i don't know about the rest of you guys but um we're gonna we're gonna review that we just want to give it its proper time and space um we don't want to you know breeze through it because it's not a breeze through it book so um we'll get that review out to you guys soon uh the book does come out this week though so hopefully you guys have the chance to pick it up and then you can 
you know, hear us talk about it and we'll be able to talk about it with full spoilers because if we, you know, mm. do the review right here on the show, we're going to be concerned with spoilers and stuff like that. So um, we'll be able to get that out to you guys with full spoilers. Um, I'm sure Pete wants to talk about it too, that scumbag. Yeah, what's that scumbag? What's the uh what's the reasoning this time? Is he does he have a concussion? What is it? So, like I said in the outset of the episode, he's renegotiated his deals that he can only be on episodes where we talk about the major movies. Right, because that's it's his like, bag. It's like diarrhea, right? Pretty much. Gross. It's too much time at Olive Garden. Yeah, he's <laughs> He's family there now. <laughs> so let, let's jump into let's jump into Swamp Thing. We're only talking Swamp Thing news wise, and then we're gonna, hey, we're gonna hey. do a little bit of. Uh... <laughs> Marco's like, "This is my kind of news week." <laughs> and then we're and then we're gonna uh, talk about the Avengers Endgame stuff um, to close out. But so Swamp Thing, the show, has had a weird week to say the least. So, uh, we we found out a few days ago, uh, like three days ago at this point, that production on the show ended early. So, mm-hmm. uh, for for those of you who are somehow unfamiliar, uh, Swamp Thing was going to be a live is going to be a live action show on the DC Universe app, and it was supposed to be thirteen episodes. And uh, apparently, Warner Brothers halted production, so it's going to be. 10 episodes now um, and the production crew was only told on Tuesday Damn. that this was going to happen and the writers are trying to work out uh, an ending for the season or for the show we don't even know whether or not this show is just ending or if they're just truncating the season for whatever reason um and this this does beg a few big questions about where the DC Universe streaming app is headed, whether or not it's it's just, you know, it, they're going to bundle it with something else or if they're going to call it quits on this or whatever. But focusing purely for now on the streaming service situation or rather the, the Swamp Thing situation, uh, what do you guys make of this? So this, this news came out uh, on Wednesday. Okay. Just, just for the the timeline clarification, uh, that is the seventeenth. Okay. Um, this is crazy. Okay. okay. <laughs> you wanted to, okay. You wanted to correct me. Now make a point that's actually you know was I cor- conducive I, I to conversation. I wasn't correcting. I was. Just... Well, well, do you have a point? <laughs> um, it's crazy. <laughs> All right, Marco, he's in go shock. Ahead. <laughs> this is crazy. Just this. This is crazy. Just because. Well, uh, when um, I I I, t- I was talking to one of my friends about it, and and like it's it's interesting that they would pull or they would end it at ten, where a lot of times we've sort of been complaining about most superhero shows recently, at least. Um, they've been a little too long. My only concern there is if they were originally going to slate it to be 13, that's sort of the story structure, whether or not that's something that gets mandated either by, um, the, either by Warner Brothers or if that was something that the writers had sort of planned out. It seems like it's something that the writers had planned just based off of the way that they now need to rewrite and, um, 
there's been some specu- speculation online that you know originally it's because they're they're cutting out the potential for any second season, um, and this also happened to coincide with news about the uh, Warner Brother app um, also sort of dropping and and being in flux, and there being questions about that and how DC's related to it. So there's just like a lot in the in the pot to sort of stir around and um i don't know it, it it leaves you in a weird taste and then literally i think the next day they drop a teaser for the show and you're just like all right what the fuck's going on now like like you 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 lure me in tell me oh yeah we got these cool people you know this nice director and then you go oh we're cutting production oh but wait check it out it looks pretty neat right <laughs> Uh, let me qu- actually correct Marco. Um, the All right, the trailer and everything was dropped Wednesday night. Well then, so they so they announced the 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 halting of production on Wednesday, and then the tra- they dropped the trailer in only a few hours later. What's and and to to add to that, what's interesting is that there was not a formal, at least as far as I'm aware, there wasn't a formal announcement by warner it was actually um star news which is like a local news uh outlet online mm-hmm. um that that broke this story they received the word from people who were working on this project from from production crew members and whatnot they were the they were able to inter- interview them and then the actress virginia madsen uh spoke to them as well so Warner not even really speaking on this. I wonder if it's because it's too early for them to announce what they're going to do. Right. You know, if they are going to try and make a, a rival app, you know, they're but they're not ready. Um, maybe they're just keeping their, their mouths shut. But you would think that they'd have the foresight to like plan that out and and come together, come out with some kind of joint messaging to because like right now everybody's left in sort of the same state we are, just like well, what the fuck's going on? Yeah, um, it it's it's really weird, and what makes it weirder to me is that it's it's not as if the DC app, you know, it, they've been they, there haven't been any any announcements or any word about it. Um, recently, right? Like they announced uh, St- Star Girl, right? Yeah. Um, yep. They 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 showed like we've seen some stuff. They've talked about some stuff, and they just announced that they were adding all these comics to the app. So it makes it hard for me to believe that they're just gonna cut it off, right? It'd be really early. It feels like to do that to say, you know, we tap out. Um, and then if they're gonna come create some other app. It also seems weird to say, well, that's going to be the app where we put the shows on or that. Like, how can you do that? Right. It, it seems very odd. Just to try to keep up, try to compete. It's it's shitty, but it it really I think it's another layer in this new. Well, the competition itself isn't new, but in this competition of marvel versus dc now it's a uh, a whole other level it's disney versus warner brothers, warner brothers versus so many others Netflix and hulu yeah and well and uh, not hulu anymore they're part of disney right and that's what drives me nuts about this and it's another example i feel of warner not really 
knowing what they were getting themselves into. So why would you launch an app, the DC streaming app, that doesn't include anything but DC when you have everything that they have access to? It Mm -hmm. feels like a situation where they're saying, well, we can get money every way. We can get money off the DC app. We can get money off the Warner app, you know, whatever. And that is, I don't think that's the way. Because when you look at what DC's or Disney's offering, they're throwing everything on the pile. Yeah, it it to me it 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 says that you know they're not paying attention either, right? You know this Disney app has been cooking for a while, and it was definitely cooking when uh when they launched the the DC app. So why didn't they wait? Why didn't they wait to launch the DC app when they had everything they wanted to do? Why didn't they make the DC app better? I mean, you know, these are all questions we've we've posed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that 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 fact, um, that fact is going to make this really sad if the DC Universe app goes away, or mm-hmm. if they stop production on some of these other shows. Because they, it does have potential. I mean, Marco has sung the praises several times, and we've talked about how cool it is that they're adding, you know, certain shows that probably would never see. Like Titans, whether you liked it or not, I personally liked what I saw of it. Yeah. You would never see that on any channel, right? Um, and Swamp Thing is not a guarantee that that would get made, and not certainly not a guarantee that it would get made properly. To be able to involve the right people. Um, and it sucks. The idea that these shows might not come out or, or might be um, cut off at the legs because of bad planning. Um, but that aside, the negatives aside, the teaser didn't really offer a ton, but it was cool. Getting to see Swamp Thing. What? Didn't you see the way that he came out of the water? Obviously an illusion to issue uh, 73. No. Oh, come I, on! I actually, he man. probably he probably did that in issue seventy three. <laughs> <laughs> I thought Marco, you were dead serious. No. Marco, Marco probably just played that off to make it make us think he wasn't dead serious, <laughs> but he he said he said it just quick enough where just like last time in the comics, pals one twenty four. Um, nah, it was it, it was cool. It it at least gave you a glimpse as to like how they're gonna mesh the CG portion with the like more live action piece of it. Um, and obviously you're you're in the dark, right? So you can get away with it a little bit more in in terms of like not having that that finesse. Um, yeah. But I mean, it looked good. Like he was he was mossy. <laughs> what a sell! And and really, like that's what you want. That is what you want. You want a Masi Swamp thing. But you do want him to look menacing. And, and, and I think that at least it, it, in a way came off. I'm hearing a lot of very complicated feelings about how you want Mark, uh, how you want Swamp Thing to look and be personally. Like, who, what, is, what is Swamp Thing to you, Marco? Is he- Connected to that. Have you seen the, <laughs> the 80s Swamp Thing film? Uh, uh, I've seen bits and pieces of it. I've not sat down to actually watch it. Oh, shame. It's not very good. I know, I know it's not. That's why I've not sat down to watch it. It's it's a I think it's a masterpiece. I don't think they should what? I think it's one of those things that it's like Watchmen, you should just never remake it. It's West West Craven Camp stuff, right? So 
Is it? Yeah, it's Wes Craven. Wow. Well, the first one is. I don't know about the second one. The fact that yeah. they got to number two is uh, is interesting. <laughs> I mean, listen, it was the 80s. It was the Wild West. That's a fact. Yeah, that's a good point. So we'll be we'll be following this story obviously uh, as far as Swamp Thing goes because uh, you know Marco might combust if the <laughs> show doesn't uh, doesn't see the light of day or gets canceled right after release. Uh, it's coming out in May, so not too much time left to wait for the release of that. Um, like I will I said, say, go ahead. if they if they do cancel it. Uh, I won't be upset. I, I, I as a Swamp Thing fan, you you get you, you learn to love what you get. <laughs> he'll get that news and he'll be like, "I get it." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god! Checks out. You have to appreciate the the good days, you know, when you're not. Oh being. yeah, yeah. You, you, you just you take it day by day. That's it. Marco, this week, what you've been through this week is what the rest of us feel like in a a regular news cycle. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I I wanted to close out the show this week with a conversation about Avengers Endgame because obviously the movie is releasing uh, for us it's 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 coming out it's coming out this week um and we've been waiting a long time for this this is you know what eleven years in the making since two thousand eight with Iron Man and uh, it's a pretty big deal. This is the culmination of all that storytelling, all those movies, and I mean, we're all probably at this point different people than we were when that first came out, right? Like, you know, um, it's it's amazing that we've reached this point, and the excitement is at a fever pitch. And I just want to talk about what what it is that we expect to see happen in this movie, some of the things that we hope get resolved or you know get dealt with, and um, where where they might go after that kind of stuff. And the lead in to this conversation is the fact that this week, or, you know, depending on when you're listening to this, I guess, uh, last week, um, uh, some, uh, several minutes of the movie actually, um, were, were leaked online. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was something that I personally never thought would happen. Because of how closely guarded Disney seems to be keeping all of their stuff when it comes to Avengers, when it comes to Star Wars. But it, it did happen. Were you guys able to avoid seeing any footage? I didn't see a damn thing. Yeah, I haven't seen anything. Yeah, I found out after like it was, it was all blown over. Yeah, I, have, mm-hmm. I, 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 I could access it. I'm aware of it. I have no interest in watching it. Send the link! <laughs> You're not going to watch it either, bitch. Says who? Says me. If you're asking for a link, <laughs> well, then you're wrong. Uh, yeah, I avoided it. I was—I'll be honest—I was pretty upset that that even happened because it's just—it's just messed up, man. Like we've all been waiting for this for so long. Why do that? Even if you had the means to release something like this, even if you had access, you know, enjoy it for yourself, whatever. But don't—I I, don't poison the well. Is my thinking. For me, this stuff never – I'm not shocked at this stuff anymore. You know, right. we have people like Julian Assange being arrested and, and uh, you know, Chelsea Manning. And your your opinions of them may vary. But, like, when you have, like, like hackers and, and people at that level and, and, and what they do is release the, the last four minutes of the Avengers, 
dog, I've got $100,000 in student loans you could get rid of. What do you... Fair point. I just love how you managed to weave in a Julian Assange reference during a conversation about <laughs> that Avengers. Was, that was impressive. I'm here to impress one person, and that is Phil Casey. Wow. Wow. I'm impressed. Kale, I'm sure this, is the most a, to do. this is the most attracted to you I've ever been. <laughs> Come on. That's not true. <laughs> I gotta be honest with you, Sean. I haven't been thinking about this movie at all. And it's kind of both on purpose and not on purpose. Because um, I want to go in as much of a blank slate as I can. If that makes sense. Mm. I don't want to have an expectation. I don't I, I don't have any kind of preconceived notions. I I don't even want to get hyped for it. I, I just want to go in and experience it. Right. Um, this is going to be three hours long. Which is the equivalent of... Three KLP breaks. Um, Three. Sorry, six. <laughs> At least. Um, that minimum. <laughs> uh, so I haven't really given it a ton of thought. I, uh, I'm obviously very en- enthusiastic about it, but uh, coming into this sh- show today, because I knew we were going to talk about this, I kept thinking about every asshole who, who left Infinity War saying, well, well, all the characters are just going to come back. <laughs> yeah. Like, as if, like, this movie doesn't matter because, like, oh, well, they're all coming back anyway. And honestly, I don't know. Uh, maybe they don't all come back. I mean... Maybe they don't they're all... They're going to come back, right? Like, maybe not all of them. I, I don't think that's true. Maybe fucking Gamora doesn't come back. Who? Gamora. Oh. Uh, I'm confident that Gamora will return. Um... But you bring up a good point. We don't know, you know, and we think we know, right? Like every sign points towards all these characters coming back, but we don't know. And we also don't know what kind of sacrifices the the, the, the characters that are still alive will have to make to bring those heroes back. One of the things that sucks about these movies a little bit is that we happen to know especially in our position we happen to know like they're working on another uh captain marvel movie and there are plans for another black panther and there's another spike like we know these things that kind of you know mess up the suspension of disbelief on some level yeah my dad's Um, a disney insider so we get all the scoop exclusives (laughs) Oh, God, that's so stupid. Um, Did you guys know? (laughs) My dad told me that Disney is working on a Captain America versus Batman movie. Your dad's as dumb as you. That's that's like a playground rumor, though. Like you can picture being like, that's yeah. a kid's like, no, I heard they're working on a Batman versus Captain America movie, and Batman kills Captain America. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but um, I think that's kind of the fun of it on some levels. Like we don't we don't totally know. And this feels... You don't get these kind of endings in comics. That's the big difference. In comics, let's say, you know, whatever. You take Infinity, right? You take you take Secret War. Um, Secret Wars, I should say. Um, yeah, it was pretty big. But by the time Secret Wars was around, they were already talking about what was going to happen after. Mm. And with no... Mm. Like, with no 
care for spoilers necessarily. Like we already knew where certain characters were going to end up and, and what the stories would look like. And that's, you know, they have to do that on some level for retailers. And I get that, but it wasn't always like that. And nowadays it feels like the movies are the only place where you can go and not totally know. Like, yeah, Spider-Man Far From Home is definitely coming out. But we don't know if that movie takes place after Endgame because they haven't talked about it. Um, go ahead. I, I I agree with you to a certain extent. Yeah. Uh, but I would also say that, like, I would be very surprised if, if, or for me, it will it will be a good experience if they do surprise me. In that, you know, whether it uh, shows me something I didn't expect or something that, you know, has some degree of finality to it that, you know, comic books often don't, I just don't know, man. Yeah, I think, I think I'm in that camp of just like I, like, I don't know. And because I don't know, they need to do something that proves to me that, okay, they're committing to a certain thing uh, or a certain way of storytelling and... Then I think I might be like re like reinvested overall, just because at this point, like we we understand that this is like the culmination of everything, right? Mm. And and for that next wave, for me to take it seriously, I feel like I there needs to be that finality in this, or some finality. Yes, something. And 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 to your point, they have to surprise me with it because if it's if we're going off of the the comic book stuff, then you know that's not gonna entice me as a viewer. Mm. Um, Marco, let me ask you a question. What do you want to see in this movie? Good question. Well, I want to see an actual consequence that isn't resolved by some kind of like I I just I just don't want characters to come to come back that would otherwise or should otherwise remain dead and because this is a culmination of like multiple franchises we're referencing comics like i don't expect that and that's something that for me i would want to continue to make this uh something enjoyable for me otherwise it's just like all right fine this is this this is the same stuff that i'm getting anywhere else and obviously it's in a different medium and it's a, it's produced differently it's made differently and i can appreciate that appreciate it for that but Otherwise, just another comic story, and and uh, or another sort of trope of a superhero story. So, when you say characters who should stay dead, who are you talking about? Um, trying to remember. Well, if, dead if, if 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 I may, Marco, yeah. um, you know, like in in my in my view, like the people who are snapped dead you know, who died in the snap or uh, disappeared into ashes or whatever, those people are pretty clearly going to come back. Right. Like, that's not... Uh, but but people like Gamora or... I would even say, like, Loki. Loki, yeah. Yeah. Loki, Loki I'm less committed to because he's a god, but, like, Gamora has no magic powers at all. And, you know, she was killed dead. And you know if they can if they can explain it well, all right, fine. But you know, oh, we didn't see the body, fine. Uh, but like, I don't know. You know, I think I think for me, at minimum, if Gamora 
comes back, I'll be like, all right, I get it. <laughs> but like, even if the other characters do come back, I still want to see some of them like exit through some kind of through some kind of death. Like, there has to be a consequence to some, to this battle. It can't just be they're winning because that's the extent to which I'll be able to suspend my disbelief. So that's a good point. Um, and I think that when you talk about consequence, I, I, I look at the original Avengers, because if you really think about it, you could, yeah, like a lot of people like to blame Star-Lord, like, oh, he's the reason everything went bad. And I don't know that I agree. I think when you, when you talk about the reason why these characters are where they're at, um, you really have to look to Cap and Steve, or I'm sorry, <laughs> to yeah. Steve and Tony, uh, because their, their fractured relationship and the Avengers not being whole, uh, in many ways, made it so that when Thanos came, it wasn't as hard to stop them. It, like, it, it wasn't as hard for him to beat them down because they were already a splintered faction. Um, and so I think a lot of this movie is going to be about repairing that. That's why I think that um, Cap and Tony, or yeah, Cap and Tony rebuilding their relationship and agreeing to team up again is going to be such an important moment. That's why it was saved for this movie and not done in Infinity War. And I also think that it's going to be those two guys in particular or one of them who has to pay the price for what happened. So it's not going to be Black Panther and Spider-Man, right? Or Doctor Strange. It's going to be someone who you could levy some responsibility on their shoulders. And I think they're feeling the weight of that. When you look at how Iron Man reacted to the death of Spider-Man, that tells you everything you need to know. You give them a reason to write off Chris Evans and Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, one of them. Or both. Or both. I'd be shocked. I'd be shocked if they both stayed in the picture. Yeah. Isn't... I think Chris Evans is attached to do some stuff with the uh, the Disney Plus stuff, isn't he? That's uh, no. Not, the only thing that I have... That we know for a fact... Is they're doing the what if series where uh, it'll be what if Peggy Carter the, got the the animated yeah. one, yeah, and he, he'll lend his voice to that, but that takes place. That's a what if, right? So yeah, right, right, right. right. As so, far as like live action stuff that continues the story, no. Of course, there are rumors he's going to sign on to the Fantastic Four movie and reprise his role as the Human <laughs> Torch. Well, but I mean, you've also got to balance those rumors with Michael B. Jordan. <laughs> being the human torch you know his character's gone now well i think you know killmonger's not there i think (laughs) i think they're gonna do a firestorm thing where they merge oh shit Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. jason roosh and ronnie raymond um cap and tony sounds like a cereal sounds like a seafood restaurant cap and tony's (laughs) (laughs) oh you can eat shrimp buffet um man i don't i I, I, I don't know what I want. Um, I, I'm i like your average consumer, I guess. <laughs> for me, so for me, when I went to Guardians, you know, and I think similar to everybody, when Guardians came out, like, I was blown away. Didn't know what to expect. Um, and when they, when the, when the ships build that, that force field to catch the, the the bigger ship or whatever um i was i was like holy shit yeah this is what this is what it must have been like for our parents watching star wars like this is dope as fuck and i 
I haven't had that moment uh, again in another MCU film. Um, so I don't know. I would love to feel that mm. here. You're looking for a feeling. Yeah, I mean, I fuck with that. Otherwise, why am I yeah, here? I fuck with that. That that's that's good. Yeah, I I want to feel something watching this. Uh, I definitely felt something watching Infinity War. Uh, I know you didn't, Kale, but uh, I know you did, Sean. Oh yeah. So I definitely want. I just, yeah, I want to feel something. I watched Captain Marvel and I didn't really feel anything. Uh, I want to feel something. And that's the that's the problem I think with movies like Captain Marvel and like. You know, kind of looking back, right? Because we're at the end of it, so it's natural when you look back on some of these movies, um, especially like prior to Phase Three, and then like there's a couple movies in Phase Two, but really prior to Phase Three, they're fine, they're they're enjoyable, right? Like I could watch most of those movies right now, and 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 you know it'd be cool, but I'm not gonna feel things, right? Like how Black mm-hmm. Panther made me feel things, yeah, man. Um, mm-hmm. Or even how Guardians, on some level, like made me feel things. Yeah, Guardians too, if you're Phil. Yeah, um, true. Yeah, so I hope for that. I, I think that's that's right on the money, Kale. And I don't have doubts about that because I felt stuff for Infinity War. Um, I feel confident in the Russos and I feel confident in the writers. Um, I f- I'm very much coming into this from the Phil perspective of like, I don't quite know what to expect i like the fact that i don't know what to expect i have certain ideas about what's going to happen that are plainly obvious but i would be the most disappointing thing that could happen to me with this movie is if it comes out and it's exactly what i think it is i want to be wrong yeah 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 as and as like as shitty as i've been about about the past two avengers films uh age of ultron and infinity war like i would i would kill to feel something in 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 this movie like i i want that so much yeah uh absolutely i i've yet to be disappointed by the russo brothers uh with their contributions because i thought civil war was great i thought winter soldier was great i thought infinity war was great so while i'm trying to go in with as little expectations as possible I would say I feel fairly at ease thinking that that this movie is in capable hands. So you would say it could be good? You know what, man? It could be good. Wow, what a brave and controversial stance. Some of us us have to make a stand, Kale. If you don't stand for anything like like that, you could fall for anything. I'm going to take a a step forward on that, and I'm going to say... I believe it will be great. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Back away from the ledge, my man. <laughs> Easy. Um, I, I do. I have I have big confidence in this creative team. I have big confidence in these actors. And I think that um, they know that this is something special. Like, when you think about it, right? In our lifetime... We there really hasn't been a moment quite like this. Like you think about Titanic. Um, oh, Harry Potter Seven Part Two is very much this type of thing. You think about Harry Potter, but like that shit was I, I, an event for so many was. people. Yeah, it was. But I I don't f- like Return of the okay, King so, too. But think about it like this, mm. right? Harry Potter 
existed and was created in the 90s, right? Mm-hmm. So like the late 90s and then the move the books came out over time. Uh-huh. So you really you really had the the kids attached and then some older people that were attached. Um and I'm not disparaging the work by saying that. I'm just saying that that's what it was. Avengers, right? Marvel characters have existed for longer than the average person has been alive. So you probably at some point in your life have developed a fondness for one of these characters. And when you look at how these movies have done financially, we understand that a lot of people are going to see these movies. And so as a result of that, I feel like this is something that has swept the entire earth, the the whole planet and every age group. There are people alive who don't know a time before the Avengers, before Iron Man. You know, I, that's why I feel like it's a it's bigger than those things. I have, I have to push back a little bit on that because honestly, other than Spider Man and the Incredible Hulk, I would I would say most of these Marvel characters weren't exceptionally well known by the general audience. Like the, the, most of these guys were B listers at best. Like the general public's real familiarity with comic book characters were like. You know, some of the Justice League characters, obviously Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman, and like Spider-Man, Wolverine, who a lot of people didn't know the name of, you know, calling him X-Man and shit before those movies, and Hulk. Uh, So I would say like people's real introduction to most of these characters was Iron Man and subsequent movies that related and the Avengers. I think think that the window of familiarity is not too dissimilar from the Harry Potter movies because that had like a 10-year window as well. Well, And and when you adjust for inflation, The Deathly Hallows Part 2 is still the 10th highest grossing movie of all time. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'm not denying that it was big. But again, like even if Iron Man 1 is the first time that you've encountered an Iron Man story... It's not the first time you've seen Iron Man. I, yeah, I think people might be I, vaguely, I don't know, man, vaguely familiar with the iconography of like what he looks like. Did it with Captain America, but like I don't think anyone had like any kind of relationship to those characters. They're B listers. Like when when Jim Lee was assigned to do Captain America in the nineties, is because it was one of the lowest selling books. That's where that was. All right. Um, well. I'm not going to budge. I think this is the biggest uh, moment film-wise in my lifetime. And I remember Harry Potter Mania, but I think what we're looking at is something different. I mean, especially when you look at the pre the pre-sales for this for this film, it's just craziness. And you know what? There's a, there's a few others. I got more. Star okay. Wars. Star Wars: The Phantom Menace. Before it came out, the hype was insane. <laughs> Star Wars Revenge of the Sith, people had insane hype. The Force Awakens had insane hype. The Dark Knight, that was fucking insane. I think yes. I, I think there's been a lot of movies since Star Wars that have had legitimately crazy hype with like sellout after sellout at the box office. Um, Avatar was another one. That's the highest grossing movie of all time. Like, I don't know why. The movie's not very good, but like, it's just how the shit. It's the, you know, I, I'm pushing back. All right, fair enough. Um, so, I guess, I guess my last 
question. Um, and granted, obviously, we haven't seen Endgame. Um, what do you guys... Well, what do you think is the legacy of this block of Marvel's movies? A lot has changed since Iron Man came out. Uh, obviously, like they got Spider Man. They've they've widened um, the pool of characters that they're willing to use. Right when you look at like the first phase versus now, you have Black Panther. Right, you have Captain Marvel. Um, you have the Guardians. Right, who would have never existed in Phase One. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just just like free flow, you know. And then we'll jump off. Like, what do you guys? What's the legacy of this? And how do you feel about what's come before? I think there's a lot, been a lot of iteration and a lot of inventiveness. Um, I don't know. This is going to be, I mean, I, I don't know any other franchise that has been this big or successful. Um, and thank you. Mark. Like, just, ju- ju- just, just like, just like on a, like on a macro, like, like, <laughs> you son of a bitch. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, man. <laughs> like, 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 on a macro level, like this is just the beginning of, like, th- this is just the first iteration of that, right? The next one's gonna be bigger, right? It and it doesn't necessarily have to be Marvel or DC for that matter. It could just, just in general, in terms of like movie franchises being a thing and having been born out of the, the the Hollywood like summer blockbuster, right? Like. Mm-hmm that's just been and, and this is just talking about film in general like it, it this is that next wave of where people see f- the the bankability for film i'm hmm. um, having these longer form continuous narratives and obviously it depends on how integrated they are a lot of factors right but uh this is that first step in the evolution of cinema potentially um and as to whether or not it'll be continued and everything after this with marvel like marvel has a lot of stuff to pull from right so I, I don't expect it to be I don't not expect them to, to do this again. I don't know if it'll be under the same sort of tour de force, just knowing that we've all gone through this first iteration and it's been overwhelming and amazing already, mm-hmm. right? So the next wave, if they play their cards right, can be either just as big or bigger. And if not, it'll just be the next thing that we've adjusted to as a society. Mm. Yeah, I, for me... I think similar to that, I think there's been a lot of repetition um, by other companies, both you know film and um, uh, comic related. I think a lot of companies are, are trying to copy on a, a formula that they see as successful, um, both for good and bad, um, and I don't i don't necessarily know if that's a good thing or not um i think more often than uh more often than not it isn't um you know we've seen we've seen the distinguished competition give it a try and it's, it hasn't worked out great but even in comics you know uh there was there were several um competitors who 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 tried to make a a a widespread uh universe out of one event uh i'm thinking of uh that one company that we worked with uh 
at that other place yeah. that uh, oh, tried to take take two. Sp- take two. Yeah, yeah, that tried to spin a whole universe out of uh, was it was it Night of the Living Dead? Yeah. Um, and it's just you know, I think I think it'll be good double to take, see. By the way, double oh. take. I think it'll be good to see originality kind of come back in uh, in terms of uh, corporate media, I guess. I think that's like a fucking oxymoron, my dude. I yeah, mm-hmm. I know, I know, but but like you know, it'll be what, what I mean though is like it'll be refreshing to see someone just make a fucking movie that stands on its own and doesn't need 20 years of bullshit to to go watch yeah <laughs> i feel that like i just watched uh baby driver for the second time oh. um oh. and oh. and when that when that came out i had skipped out on watching spider-man homecoming what a great decision you made and it was <laughs> the best decision i love that movie so oh, much it's terrific it's just the oh great choice great movie um I don't I don't know what the legacy of the MCU is. Um I You know what it I think uh, the way it'll be remembered I think is a lot of folks that grew up or remember fondly what the cinema landscape of the 80s was like. You know they talk about your Terminator, they talk about your Predator, they talk about your Lethal Weapon, your Die Hard, you know. Um, Name three more. Mm, Robocop. Um, Alien. Star, Alien, Star Wars, you know, all that. Don't help him, Sean. He don't need my help. This is Phil we're talking about. Let him about. drown in his ineptitude. <laughs> Look in the mirror, my fucking dude. <laughs> Damn. The clap back. <laughs> um, um, I think people remember this kind of block of movies in the same breath of that. Um, people talk about those movies that grew up with them or remember them fondly as being what effectively defined 80s cinema. Um, obviously, if you're a little more snobbish, you know, you push back on it, like, oh, they're just action movies, or blah, 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 blah. I think there will be a similar kind of conversation with the MCU. I think they will be seen as the films that pretty much define the 2010s. Obviously, Iron Man came out in 2008 and whatnot, but I think it will be primarily, like, Star Wars came out in 77, you know, like, but it's still, like, the 80s. Um, and, like, people that revere film that's a little more highbrow they'll push back on it but i think ultimately this block of mcu movies will be what defined the 2010 cinema landscape for better or worse yeah i i agree with that um i also think and this is like an echo of of a conversation that we had uh last week when we were talking about like why superheroes have become uh sort of the dominant form of, of of media and entertainment um this is certainly the period during which being a nerd, being a geek, loving comics has become very, very accepted, very acceptable in our society, uh, much more than ever before. Um, you know, like now, it's a pretty reasonable expectation that 
someone you know, like if you were to ask an individual in your life, like, hey, have you seen a Marvel movie? They're going to say, yeah. And they probably have a fondness for at least one or, or at this point, a, a couple, you know, a few. Mm-hmm. And it's not weird. You know, it's, it's not strange. And we had moments like that with Spider-Man, like the first Spider-Man movie, I think, was a moment like that in a lot of ways. But a lot of those movies shied away from what they were, which was, you know, uh, coming from off the source material that was that was made for geeks, made for nerds, made for people who, you know, were beat up in school for what they liked. Um, and we, you know, we exist in a time that's beyond that now. And I think that's really cool. Um, and there will always be imitators, you know, that, that that's always going to happen. And a lot of that stuff is trash and <laughs> they're going to continue to do it. And it's going to continue to be trash until somebody cracks the code. But I think the legacy of, of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, at least phases one through three, is going to be that Marvel, uh, they did what everybody thought was impossible. And it's cool that they pulled it off. And they changed the way that we think about movies. And I think they changed the way that we think about these characters and about the source material. And we needed that. It's a it's a it's a it's a, a breath of fresh air. Will that breath of fresh air turn stale? It might. Uh, but uh that remains to be seen. Well, there's I think the probability of the staleness increases exponentially after this movie comes out i think a lot of th- yep. i think there's a really good chance that people check out after this i think you're right is that what that's a great question what do you, what do you guys think kale i'm i'm tempted <laughs> like, <laughs> I, i'm 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 genuinely like uh i i definitely had the thought when when that story about Kevin Feige being like, uh, oh, you're not going to want to go to the bathroom even though it's three hours because there's not a moment of this movie that you're going to want to miss. Kale's like, I'm going to piss my pants, fucker. I was just I was just like, I mean, if this is how it's going to be, then maybe I just don't want this. Like, the comics are more fun for me anyway, so maybe this just isn't for me anymore. That's chill. Huh. That's respectable. If Pete was here, he'd push yeah, back man. so hard on that. He'd be like, "There's no the bubble will never pop. This is who I am." <laughs> well, what's hilarious about that is that I was always the one who had to push back on the concept of there being a bubble at all, and Pete was always like, "Yeah, there's definitely a bubble," and blah blah blah. <laughs> um, what were you gonna say, Marco? I was just say, I, I laid it out. Yeah, like if they don't deliver on this, I'm out. Tapping <laughs> out. Comics pals are done. Bye. Shoot. Well, all right. This might be this might be the end of the pals, I guess. <laughs> we get three Ooh, tops. We have three episodes left. <laughs> <laughs> we might need a splinter show after this. Well, don't worry, Break guys. Stuff off. There'll be another Venom movie. <laughs> Facts. All right. Well, we're gonna leave it there. Uh, next week we will return with our review of Avengers Endgame. Um, and that's probably going to be the whole show. So, um, you know, come back to us for that, for our thoughts on the movie. Enjoy the movie. Don't spoil yourself ahead of time. Take in this moment because they rarely come around. And hey, don't spoil other people, asshole. Thanos demands your silence.
I, so does fucking Kale. <laughs> if I find out, I'll come to your house. Don't think I won't. I'm bringing a goddamn Vuvuz whale into the theater with you, dude. So, uh, just, you know, real quick, couple plugs. Um, we didn't get to do this at the start of the show because we really came in hot with the Brian Hill interview. But if you want to let us know your thoughts about that interview or your thoughts going into Avengers Endgame or anything like that, you can uh, get us all over the place. We are at the Comics Pals wherever your social media is sold. Um, when it comes to finding the podcast, we are on SoundCloud, we're on Apple Podcasts, we're on Spotify, all those good places, all the old familiar places. Uh, you can write to us at the comicspals at gmail.com. We're very, very, very uh, approachable. So, except for Kale. Um, so reach out to us. Don't approach me. <laughs> Uh, and then uh, just a, you know a couple book club plugs. We got the Infinity Book Club out now, mm. and that was a lot of fun for us to do. I think I speak for everybody when I say that. And you guys are going to want to check that out for sure before Avengers Endgame hits uh, theaters. We've got the Hellboy Book Club um, and a bunch of others. Shazam. We've done a lot. Shazam. And we've got more coming. Uh, Dark Phoenix is coming real soon with a, with a huge revelation from me. So uh, you're going to want to hear that. Um <laughs> And uh, yeah, dude. And that's about it. So with that, let's do some plugs. Kale. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Toto Into. That's T O T O I N T O W. You can find my work, including uh, podcasts such as this one and uh, the one I do with my wife, Gone Global, uh, at kaleward.com. That's C A L E W A R D dot com. Uh, currently. Uh, we don't have an episode for Gone Global up yet. We're having some technical issues, but hopefully we'll have that up here in a week or two. So, um, you can find Pete at loud underscore Pete. He does some stuff with a place called Loot Pots where they talk about Nintendo and, um, uh, whatever. Jeez. Chill. Uh, <laughs> Marco. Uh, you can find me at Mr. Marco Animoto on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, I think the next thing, the next book I'm going to tackle might be uh, The Killer, which is a French, it's a massive French book. Um, uh, I should have pulled it up beforehand. I'm just going to get the, the artist. I might have that as well, actually. Uh, so it is written by... Matt, uh, and drawn by Luke Jacardnon. Uh, I don't know. I picked it up. Uh, I have this this massive tome that collects all of it, and yeah, I'm just I'm gonna jump into that. Awesome. How about you, Phil? All right, all you Philomaniacs out there, you can hit me up at Cyborg Bebop on Instagram and Twitter. And here's a little Avengers fan theory for you. Hit me up on why you think or don't think the ending of Avengers Endgame will be Thanos giving us the Zack Snyder director's cut of Justice League. Director's cut, director's cut, director's cut. <laughs> snap, snap, snap. I'm, I'm still waiting on that, personally. <laughs> uh, <laughs> As for me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram only at Sean Soapbox. Hit me up to talk about the work of Brian Edward Hill. And thank you again, Brian, for joining us. Again, he is at Illuminati 
on Twitter. You can find uh, a lot of his work on his website, owlandserpents.com, and all of his books are really great, whether it's American Carnage or Postal or Killmonger or whatever he's written. Uh, so go check him out. And with that, we're the Comics Pals signing off. Take care, guys. See you next week! <laughs>
Like, you know, greetings, Megatron. Nobody summons Megatron. <laughs> Good. <laughs> then it pleases me to be the first. <laughs> You're like, oh! Oh! <laughs> you know. I love it. So is your ringtone, Stan Bush, You've Got the Touch? That's the song from the movie. Yeah. Yeah. That's the song. Is that your ringtone? <laughs> it's a good question. 